This call is being recorded.
In the northwest corner, the United States, right up near the Canadian border, there's a little town called Libby, Montana. And it's surrounded by pine trees and lakes and just amazing mm -hmm. wildlife. And these enormous trees that scream up into the sky. And in there is a little town called Libby, which I visited, which feels kind of lonely, a little isolated. There's a rather unusual woman named Gayla Benefield. She always felt a little bit of an outsider, although she's been there almost all her life, a woman of Russian extraction. She told me when she went to school, she was the only girl who ever chose to do mechanical drawing. Later in life, she got a job going house to house, reading utility meters, gas meters, electricity meters. And she was doing the work in the middle of the day. And one thing particularly caught her notice, which was in the middle of the day, she met a lot of men who were at home, middle age, late middle age. And a lot of them seemed to be on oxygen tanks. Struck her as strange. Then a few years later, her father died at the age of 59, five days before he was due to receive his pension. He'd been a minor. She thought he must just have been worn out by the work. But then a few years later, her mother died. And that seemed stranger still, because her mother came from a long line of people who just seemed to live forever. In fact, her Aunt Gayla's uncle is still alive to this day and learning how to waltz. It didn't make sense that Gayla's mother should die so young. It was an anomaly. And she kept puzzling over anomalies. And as she did, other ones came to mind. She remembered, for example, when her mother had broken a leg and went into hospital. And she had a lot of x-rays. And two of them were leg x-rays, which made sense. But six of them were chest x-rays which didn't. She puzzled and puzzled over every piece of her life and her parents' life, trying to understand what she was seeing. She thought about her town. The town had a vermiculite mine in it. Vermiculite was used for soil conditioner just to make plants grow faster and better. Vermiculite was used to insulate lofts, huge amounts of it put under the roof to keep houses warm during the long Montana winters. Vermiculite was in the playground, it was in the football ground, it was in the skating rink. What she didn't learn until she started working this problem is vermiculite's a very toxic form of asbestos. When she figured out the puzzle, she started telling everyone she could what had happened, what had been done to her parents and to the people that she saw on oxygen tanks at home in the afternoons. But she was really amazed. She thought, when well, everybody knows, they want to do something. But actually, nobody wanted to know. 
In fact, she became so annoying as she kept insisting on telling this story to her neighbors, to her friends, to other people in the community, that eventually a bunch of them got together and they made a bumper sticker, which they proudly displayed on their cars, which said, yes, I'm from Libby, Montana, and no, I don't have asbestosis. But Gayla didn't stop. She kept doing research. The advent of the internet definitely helped her. She talked to anybody she could. She argued and argued, and finally she struck lucky when a researcher came through town studying the history of mines in the area, and she told him her story. And at first, of course, like everyone, he didn't believe her, but he went back to Seattle and he did his own research, and she re he realized that she was right. So now she had an ally. Nevertheless, people still didn't want to know. They said things like, well, if it were really dangerous, someone would have told us. If that's really why everyone was dying, the doctors would have told us. Some of the guys used to very heavy jobs said, I don't want to be a victim. I can't possibly be a victim. And anyway, every industry has its accidents. But still, Gayla went on, and finally she succeeded in getting a federal agency to come to town and to screen the inhabitants of the town, 15,000 people. And what they discovered was that the town had a mortality rate 80 times higher than anywhere in the United States. That was in 2002, and even at that moment, no one raised their hand to say, Gayla, look in the playground where your grandchildren are playing. It's lined with vermiculite. This wasn't ignorance. It was willful blindness. Willful blindness is a legal concept, which means if there's information that you could know and you should know, but you somehow manage not to know, the law deems that you're willfully blind. You have chosen not to know. There's a lot of willful blindness around these days. You can see willful blindness in banks when thousands of people sold mortgages to people who couldn't afford them. You could see them in banks when interest rates were manipulated and everyone around knew what was going on, but everyone studiously ignored it. You can see willful blindness in the Catholic Church, where decades of child abuse went ignored. You could see willful blindness in the run-up to the Iraq War. Willful blindness exists on epic scales like those, and it also exists on very small scales, in people's families, in people's homes and communities, and particularly in organizations and institutions. Companies that have been studied for willful blindness can be asked questions like, are there issues at work that people are afraid to raise? And when academics have done studies like this of corporations in the United States, what they find is 85% of people say yes. 85% of people know there's a problem, but they won't say anything. And when I duplicated the research in Europe, asking all the same questions, I found exactly the same number. 
85%. That's a lot of silence. It's a lot of blindness. And what's really interesting is that when I go to companies in Switzerland, they tell me this is a uniquely Swiss problem. And when I go to Germany, they say, oh, yes, this is the German disease. And when I go to companies in England, they say, oh, yeah, the British are really bad at this. And the truth is, this is a human problem. We're all, under certain circumstances, willfully blind. What the research shows is that some people are blind out of fear. They're afraid of retaliation. And some people are blind because they think, well, seeing anything is just, it's just futile. Nothing's ever going to change. If we make a protest, if we protest against the Iraq war, nothing changes. So why bother? Better not to see this stuff at all. And the recurrent theme that I encounter all the time is people say, well, you know, the people who do see, they're whistleblowers, and we all know what happens to them. So there's this. If we were to walk into that high school, what would we see? You'd shake your head. You couldn't believe it was a school. You cannot believe that this could absolutely be going on. Because we'd see what? You see chaos. You see kids literally screaming and yelling, rolling in the hallway, swearing, cursing, wrestling, sometimes fighting, and you'll see no administration. You were a teacher for 27 years in Patterson, New Jersey, right? Correct. Uh huh. And you said that you didn't feel comfortable talking about your experiences until now. Why? I'm retired now. As of July, I've retired. Uh, I did contact you at one time, and I backed off because I was scared. I was afraid that I could lose my job. Let's get into some of the specifics. And this was at JFK High School in Patterson where you taught. Correct. The entire 27 years. The entire time. Uh, you talk about student absences that go on in that high school all the time and kids cutting class. Tell me what you mean. It, the attendance is absolutely horrible. There's a 20-day attendance policy. It doesn't mean a thing. Kids don't have to show up for class. They're cut. I'll have kids with maybe 30, 40, 50, 60 days of absence, maybe another 20 or 30 days of cuts, and sometimes they're even suspended. So when it comes time to the end of the year, uh, I fail them, and then I'm asked, what can we do about passing them? I said, how can you pass them? You weren't here. Right. This document you handed me said you counted up all the absences and the cuts. Correct. And what you're telling us in this document is that on average, the average kid was absent 21 days and then cut, which means they were in school but not in your class. Correct. Another 12 days. At least. Meaning over 33 days was the average, not abs either absent or cut out of your class, that a kid was, was registered to be in a school, registered to be in your class. 33 days. That's absolutely correct. And what does administration say about this? You presented this to them. I send them, I send them documentation every marking period, just like the documentation I gave you. So they have it every marking period, what's going on. It's just overlooked. They could care less because I know it to come to the end of the year, they will still graduate, especially if they were a senior. Is this one year an exception in your 27 years? No. You give an example of uh, kids who uh, aren't in your class. They don't show up to take the test. And administration says they're in a different class. Explain that story. Uh, I had a senior 
absolutely did nothing. The guidance counselor came up to me and asked me, what can we do to have this, this kid pass? And I just said, I won't. I, I finally gave in. And I said, he has to come in for the next two weeks early and I will give him work and he has to make up all his time. And then the next day he doesn't show up. So the following day, the super, not the superintendent, my supervisor will come to see me and he goes, what can we do to pass? I said, nothing. I said, he's got all these days out. I made a deal with his guidance counselor. He didn't do that. Absolutely nothing. Then it turns out, I find out that they pulled him out of my class. Uh, they made some sort of arrangements with scheduling, saying that he's no longer in my class, and now he's in art appreciation. There is no such class. And then being that he's in a class, he passed. You're saying they invented a class just to give this kid credits? Yeah. So they could, And why are they doing all this? To keep the numbers up, to say, look, uh, we always had a very low um, graduation rate, like I said, especially with seniors. So they want to have, they want the, the numbers to go up. We're usually around 300, maybe a little over 300. They just want those numbers to go up. That has, has nothing to do with education or kids being in school or being responsible to be in class. Choice Media requested an interview with Patterson Superintendent Donnie Evans to respond to these charges. While his office did not reject our invitation explicitly, they did say they would not have time for an interview until at least 2015. Also of note, an article last month in the Patterson Press newspaper said that Evans received a $10,750 bonus that was based on increased high school graduation rates in the Patterson district. So you showed me a school calendar, and at the end of the year, it has a final exam. Well, it wasn't a school calendar of the year. It was just – it was the end of the year schedule for a final exam. Okay, okay. an exam schedule. Yeah, it was the exam schedule. All right. So there's a date, a Friday, and it indicated there a final exams, right? Right. But then it showed two more weeks. Two After full weeks. That, what are those weeks? Most kids don't even show up for the final exam. They definitely will never show up for uh, a makeup. Most kids don't even show up at all the last two weeks of school, which makes me wonder why do we bother even have 181 days of school for kids? So the last two weeks of school, you're saying, are after the final exam. Correct. And that goes to like you figure kids would be turning in their books, uh, making arrangements to uh, they had to do any extra work, get extra credit in. But I kind of figured out why they have that lap, that extra two weeks, and they can really care less about the kids. I believe that's the administration's way to sit down and figure out which kids, they, how they can manipulate a teacher to get them to change their grade. Uh, to get them, They will come into a classroom and ask me, is there anything we can do for this kid so he can pass? Let's talk about student discipline. I'm going to read something you wrote. Gangs of students roam the building all day, every day, all year. They will enter my room during a lesson. I ask them to leave. I'm ignored. I ask again. I'm still ignored. When I come over to them, they'll start running around my classroom, swearing, cursing at me, taking things that don't belong to them. Some grab safety glasses and run out of a shop class. Then eventually make a stance of defiance, swear, threaten, curse at me. Finally, when I have to go outside the classroom door and yell for security, because I have trespassers, then they run out. And you say they also do this when they're looking to fight or beat someone up. They, they have done this to other, other classes. Gangs of kids will roam the building. They're looking for a certain person. They'll walk into the classroom. They'll find that kid and just start a fight in that class. It's just that simple. 
retribution uh, get basically I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the reason is. A lot of times there's really no reason. Sometimes it may be over something stupid. You looked at me stupid. Uh, but it's just it's just absolutely it's nothing more. It's all oh, I can explain it really simple. It's an indoor street corner. Our school is an indoor street corner. When I walk in that building, I have no idea anymore the concept of what right and wrong is. So you're standing there in class. You're trying to teach. And you'll see groups of kids just enter the classroom intent on beating a particular kid up. Right. And, and what it, are you supposed to do? What does administrator, administration tell you to do? First of all, the union always tells us not to get involved because if we get hurt, we may, we may be liable. Or if we try to break it up and, get a, and a kid gets hurt, then we're definitely liable. We have to call security. And then that sometimes takes a while for security to get, uh, to get there. And the kids know it'll take a while for security to get there. And bottom line, it'll be hushed up. Nobody will get suspended. They'll bring them to security office. Uh, maybe they'll get yelled at or maybe they'll get a detention. And even with detention, they don't even show up for that. Because they want to keep all numbers down, violence. Uh, it, it, they, they just hush all this stuff up. They don't want a paper trail of what's really going on in the, inside the building and outside the building. One example of hushing someone up you give is students having sex in a stairwell in, yeah. in the high school. And, and, and this one kid, I think, I think this one kid happened to be a repeating or several time repeating 10th or 9th grader and never. This kid was always in trouble, always giving me a bad time, giving other teachers a bad time. And they finally, he was in the hallway constantly, all year, never seen him in class. And because of this situation, uh, I don't know what deals were made. I don't know if he ever even went to court, if, if he was ever arrested. But finally, because of that, he was removed from school. But it wasn't. It was hushed up. It was hushed up. You give an example of a teacher calling security because a bunch of kids are outside his room pitching quarters and making noise, disrupting class. What happened? Teacher got a hold of security. Security came in. He goes, what can I do? I'll bring the kids to the office. Administration will say, let them loose, and they'll go right back to do, doing the same thing. And that's what it is. The Our school building, all day long, you have kids in the hallway, stairwells bathrooms walking in and out of the out of the school all day long unchecked and the worst part about it the school has surveillance cameras inside and out and i would contact all my administrators especially the principal and say you have it on video and when i would email i would never get a reply back and i can understand that too i just thought of that i, I wouldn't get a reply back because then it would be a paper trail that he received it or acknowledging that he received it, but everything goes on ignored. If you were in charge of the schools, if you were the superintendent or the principal, what would you do differently? How would you address all this? Anybody who could not, all rules would have to be enforced, could not follow the rules, and, and it was uh, repetitively and there was dangerous, they would have to leave. I would try to find alternative means, but I'm not going to have kids that want to learn. Uh, Mixed so. in with kids who don't. Absolutely. And that's exactly what they do. And they keep the bad kids in there. And now you have good kids turning into bad kids because why do I have to work if they don't have to work and they're going to pass? We have police in the building. They are not allowed to do anything unless they are told by administration first. If they should take a stance, if the fight, a fight should break out and they go to break up the fight, they will not be allowed in the building. They will. They, uh, I don't know what the exact word you would say. They would be they would be banned. They would be not allowed to work in that building again because they're getting paid overtime.
apologists for uh, you know, the term I use apologists for the education establishment would say it's not nothing to do with the school. It's not the school's fault. It's that it's poverty. That's the real problem. They're just it, these are kids from poverty. And so there's nothing else the schools could be doing. I don't believe that. You're going to tell me because somebody's poor. I grew up poor. Just because somebody's poor, they don't have manners. They don't know right from wrong. You don't know. You're not supposed to swear at an adult. You're not supposed to uh, threaten people. Bottom line, bottom line, whether you're poor, rich, whatever, you won't want somebody doing that to your mother. So why would you do that to somebody else? It's simple. It's got nothing to do with money or economics or any, any other word. If they're so poor, how come they all have the best of uh, cell phones and they all have hundred plus dollar uh, sneakers, and they brag about the T-shirts that they spend thirty, forty, fifty dollars? Where I'll go buy three for uh, for six dollars. <laughs> now you know what people will say to you. They say that if you get tough on kicking the kids out who aren't uh, behaving in the way that you want, and many of these kids come from underprivileged backgrounds, poverty backgrounds, it will hurt their lives more because now they'll not even have high school degrees. Hopefully, if they learn to follow the rules, because that's the way the that's the way the real world works. You're going to go and teach kids in school that you can do this, you can do that, you uh, have poor behavior, you're dysfunctional, you can threaten people. You got to get rid of them because that's not accepted. That's not accepted in society. I would like to know why it can be allowed in school, but if they act the same way any place out, they would be arrested. So when you go to school, are you going to fool around? Yeah, your kids. Is school boring? Yeah, they're kids. But you can't interfere with the process of education. The bottom line is if they're not being educated, we're, they're basically getting a high school diploma. They're illiterate. We are ruining a nation. And, and our, administrators, our administrators are allowing this. Nobody cares. And it took me a long time to be retired in order to bring this up because all the teachers are afraid. I'm doing this because I'm passionate about it because what has gone on is, go- is wrong. I have nothing. I'm not interested in the money. I'm not interested in becoming a celebrity. It's not never been my style. I'm low key. I'm doing this because something has to be done about it. It is wrong. I'm going to repeat it. We are ruining a nation. Let me tell you a quick story. Jenny, you there? The sound is out. Did we lose him? I think we might have lost him. Excuse me. One second. Let me try and get him. I think he dropped off.
Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now, Rob? Yeah, yeah I can hear you now. You're good. You dropped off the line. Yeah, it's crazy. This the this the third time this month. All right, I'm starting the right, Parkinson's law back over. My apologies. Okay, no problem. Let me tell you a quick story. Back when I was in high school, our teacher wanted us to write an essay. But because it was supposed to be a longer paper, he gave us one whole month to finish it. I was a massive procrastinator back then, and since the deadline was so far away, I didn't even think about starting writing yet. Instead, I decided my time was better spent playing video games. Days passed and the deadline was coming closer and closer, but I hadn't written a single word. About two days before we had to turn in our essay, I realized the deadline was so close that I might not be able to finish in time. This is when I went into full-on panic mode. With only two days left, I started writing with pure focus. Finishing that paper became my number one priority and everything else became secondary. I didn't think about video games or anything else. All of my focus was on that essay. Thankfully, in the end, I managed to finish and turn in my paper in time. And to top it off, I also got a solid grade. Let me introduce you to the Parkinson's Law. The law states this. Work expands as to fill the time available for its completion. This might sound a bit confusing, but let me explain what it means. If someone gives you one week to mow their lawn, it will take you a whole week to do it. If they give you one month, it will take you one month. And if they give you one year to do it, God forbid, it will take you one whole year. Essentially, the more time you have to complete something, the longer it will take you to finish it. And the less time you have to complete your goal, the more likely it is that you'll complete it in proposed time. But if a goal or a task does not have a specific deadline set, it will most likely never get done. Whenever we have something we want to complete, whether it's an essay for school or mowing the lawn for someone, we make the mistake of thinking that the more time we give ourselves to complete it, the better the end result will be. However, more often than not, most of that time is spent procrastinating and only a small portion of it is spent on the thing we want to achieve. If someone gave you one month to mow their lawn, it would probably take you 29 days before you even began, simply because you know it could be completed in one day. So that's 29 days of procrastinating because you know you have more than enough time before you get started. The same thing happened with my high school essay. Most of the month was spent doing other things and only a small portion of the time was spent on writing. If I was given a week instead of one month to write that same paper, I would have finished it in one week. You can think of a deadline as a fire. When the deadline is far away, that fire is small. It doesn't threaten your life yet, that's why you don't extinguish it right away. But instead, you focus on other things. However, as the deadline gets closer and closer, that fire gets bigger and bigger. What eventually happens is that the initially small fire has gotten so big that your whole house might burn down. And now you obviously don't have a choice but to extinguish it as fast as possible. 
so that becomes your primary focus. When your house is burning down, you don't procrastinate and waste your time on unimportant things. You don't check email for just 10 minutes. You don't have a quick scroll through Twitter or Instagram. Nor do you think about playing video games. No, those things that usually make up a huge part of your procrastination become secondary and unimportant. Instead, extinguishing that fire becomes your number one priority. In other words, because your deadline is so close, or because the fire is so big, you prioritize your tasks much better. You can't afford to procrastinate or get lost in unimportant details like most people tend to do. Instead, you're fully focused on that fire. The Parkinson's law is important to be conscious about from the time management perspective. If you know something can be completed in a day, don't give yourself two days to finish it. You might think that giving yourself extra time will get you better results. However, as I've pointed out, most of the time is wasted on unimportant things. And the end result of a shorter deadline is actually oftentimes better because you're not distracted and you have greater focus. However, you should be reasonable with the time frame of the deadlines. If you know something will take a week to complete, don't set the deadline for tomorrow. This may sound obvious, but it is something people do when they first hear about the Parkinson's law. However, you can still try to push the limits of what is possible, and maybe you'll find some shortcuts along the way. Worst case scenario is you get some work done, but you need to give it a polish. Now, whether your deadline is too short or too far away, it's still better than no deadline at all. Remember, if there is no deadline, your goal will probably never be achieved. So if you don't have a fire that's getting bigger, make sure you create one. Thanks for watching. If you found this video helpful, press that like button. Also, if you'd like to help support this channel, there's a My point was, in order to have this be on the forefront in Congress and so forth, have it be discussed by the next president. Because let me tell you something. Trump commented on reparations. He said, it's an interesting idea. probably won't happen. So Trump is anti-reparations. So with this president, if he gets another term, y'all can forget about it. <laughs> My point in bringing this up is that by bringing up a discussion and raising up the discussion and creating more talking around it, that could possibly bubble up and it could become a political issue. It could become something that that's almost forced to talk about it. At the end of the day, for laws to pass, it has to become a talking point amongst everybody. Yes, the Japanese got together and so forth, you know, with, go with government officials who were probably white during that time, because we're talking about, was it the, the 50s, 40s, the 40s, 50s. something like that, you know, the internment camps. Everyone in the U.S. was talking about it during that time. Everyone was talking about Native American reparations. It was a discussion amongst white people, Asian people, black people, and so forth. And ultimately, Congress and the president decided how these reparations were going to go based on what the people were saying. You cannot exclude this talk to only a certain group of people because those certain group of people are not the ones that are going to be passing the laws throughout. This has to become a national discussion, which means that everyone has to talk about it. And as a U.S. citizen who has paid a lot of taxes over the years, 
I have the right to talk about it just like an Asian person is allowed to talk about it, as a Spanish person is allowed to talk about it, as an Indian person is allowed to talk about it. Everyone has to talk about it. To say that you need to shut up and not say anything is ridiculous. And Tone Talks responded to, to a Godfrey interview. I said, well, uh, Vlad is a Ukrainian immigrant. Um, I would not think that I would have the right to speak on Ukrainian uh, you know, topics. So therefore, he should not speak about topics with my people. But let me tell you something. You talk about Trump's impeachment, you talk about Ukrainian Because <laughs> let me tell you, the Ukraine is all mixed into that shit. <laughs> and yeah. I bet you, in the Ukraine, Trump's impeachment is probably the number one topic on everyone's lips right now. Should they shut the fuck up also because they're not American? Come on, cut it out. Everyone is allowed to talk about it. Everyone is is allowed to give an opinion. But here's the thing that really just blows my mind more than anything else. Is I am for reparations. (laughs) I'm an ally. I'm for the same thing that you claim to be for also. Okay, Vlad. You're just not sure what form it no. should take. And, 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 that and, and one of the forms that I... Yes, and one of my suggestions is not a bad thing. I didn't say, I want reparations in the form of liquor. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, the they should be able to... Weed. Yeah, everyone should get 20 pounds of weed. <laughs> and then, like, you know what I mean? Like, everyone... Because here's the thing, like, the Japanese got $20,000 in reparations. Okay, you know, you, you raise that up, you know, maybe that's worth 100000 a day. Okay, cool. $100,000 a person is not going to change the situation. What did, the, what did the Japanese get for Hiroshima? Probably nothing. I think they got something. I don't think so. That was war. Yeah, but I, the still, Japanese, I still think they got help after that. Eh, maybe. Yeah, they got some help building the infrastructure back. But Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. The U.S. was probably like, all right, well, fuck you too. Take this. Think about that. That was yeah, an unprovoked the, the, attack. The, 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 that, that, that atomic bomb was like way worse. Than, way worse. Than Pearl Harbor. It yeah. was like, yeah, they're but, still fucked up right now. People got four arms right, right now right. from that shit. Right. But if you punch someone in the face and they stab you, what are you going to be? Oh, why'd you stab me? I just punch you. Like, you know, when it comes to shit like that, this is this is what happened. I might. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean. You started it. I was minding my own business. You go and slap okay. me. We weren't even attacking Japan at that point. They decided to send a fucking a bunch of planes over to to kill like you know hundreds of people. So I'm not justifying. I'm not saying yeah, that's what they get. I'm just saying that during wartime, you do this type of shit and worse shit happens because in fact Hiroshima didn't actually cause most of the deaths. It was uh, firebombs. The U.S. was just dropping firebombs in these cities that was just burning everyone up. That's what caused most of the deaths. Hiroshima was just more spectacular. It was more like, oh, my God, <laughs> the fuck is this type of thing? But, yeah, back to my point. I absolutely have the right to talk about it, and I'm going to talk about it, and I'm going to raise the issue, and I hope more white people talk about it. I hope more... See, that's what I feel is is white people's job is to actually go to other white people and convince them to abandon a lot of their former ways. Right. 
Um, and I have a very large white following. I have a large black following, which is probably my core, but best believe millions of white people watch live TV. Absolutely. Because millions of white people are hip hop fans. <laughs> Just is what it is. Welcome to the African Leadership Series, where we bring you great inspirational speeches from African leaders. We sit here and we ask yourselves, why isn't Africa moving forward? Why does Africa continue to be taken advantage of? Well, I'll tell you why, very simply. Until Africa comes together as a continent speaking with one voice, one continent, one people, nothing, and I repeat, nothing is going to change. As individual little African countries, we are wannabe boxers. We will never make it fighting against the heavyweights. We must speak with one voice. Yeah. And this is exactly... This is exactly what our Pan-African leaders wanted to see happen in 1963 when they came together in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. They clearly stated that Africa for the Africans at home and abroad and that African Union was now. That said, Africa must speak with one voice. It is the only way for Africa to take its rightful place on the world stage. Sadly, when they went to Addis Ababa in 1963, they were divided. We had two factions, the Casablanca group and the Monrovia group. The Casablanca group were saying Africa for the Africans at home and abroad and African Union now. This was Ghana, Guinea, Mali, Egypt. Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, only seven. The other 25 of the 32 who attended were the Monrovia group. They were the nationalists. They said, let's go slow. Let's kind of wait on this Pan-African thing. 55 years later, 56 this year, we're still going slow. As if it wasn't bad enough that we were divided up into the tiny little countries that we are today. The gift that Berlin Conference gave us. One other thing that France did between 1958 and 1961, in the name of giving us our independence as African countries. France falls to the Francophone, and I hate that terminology. There is no such thing as Francophone, Anglophone. They made it up. But for the purposes of communication, I will use that. 14 of those countries, they said, in order for you to get your independence from us, you must sign this document. You thought they could have found a better name for the document. The document was called the Pact for the Continuation. I repeat, the Pact for the Continuation of Colonization. We are talking about giving you independence, but sign this Pact for the Continuation of Colonization in a different format. The same people who have the audacity to tell us that we are poor countries. They are taking trillions out of Africa every year. And what is the African doing? Like an obedient, programmed black man, we just give in. 
You know the facts. But we just do nothing about it. Now, you have to say some of the fears are real because in France that has sold you inferior equipment to theirs, France that has trained your military to be inferior to their, to their military, they are now in your country. <laughs> they can invade you. They have the permission to do so. They can destabilize you. And then one might say, why is it that African leaders haven't done anything about this deplorable situation? Well, let me tell you, my brother and sister, they have tried. Documented to this day, 22 coups where leaders were assassinated. France had something to do with it. The first seven, when they decided they were pulling out of the CFA and that they're going to print their own money, they were assassinated. Every time an African leader has tried to do what's best for their country, they were assassinated, majority of them aided by France. Such, my brothers and sisters, is the story of your Africa. They don't do coups anymore. They simply create instability. So when you hear of an instability in an African country, ask yourself, what is really going on? Because what they are telling you is really going on is just a shiny object. The real issue is over here. And you need to stop before you start being used as an instrument of your own self-destruction. If you like informative and educative videos about Africa, make sure to subscribe and hit the notification bell to get our latest videos. At times, life might seem like it's all fun and games. We'd like to think that nothing is going on behind it's the Tony scenes Robbins. and that Dean Graziosi, what's is up? really Listen, as it seems. The reality, however, is much different. And there will come times in your life when you'll need to be a powerful person. What does that really mean, though? What does power even look like? Contrary to popular belief, power has nothing to do with being aggressive or mean to people. No, power is something much more than that. Some of the greatest military heroes of ancient Rome were extremely powerful, and they used their power to crush their enemies. There are times in life when you have no other choice but to be powerful, and with the top 10 laws from the 48 laws of power, you'll be able to exercise immense power anytime, anywhere, and with anyone. Law number one, always say less than necessary. When talking to someone, a powerful person always says less than necessary. We've all been around a friend or family member who's always talking about something. After being around this person for more than a few minutes, did you start to get the feeling that they're not in control of themselves? As humans, most of us instinctively like to talk more than we should. But by always saying less than necessary, you'll appear powerful, mysterious, and in control. When you do say something, make it vague and open-ended. Saying less than necessary will make you appear powerful and intimidating. By saying less than is needed, you're much less likely to say something foolish. This law is especially useful if you ever get stopped by the police and need to protect your rights. Law number two, court attention at all costs. In society, everyone is judged by their appearance, whether we like it or not. To be a powerful person, be conspicuous and stand out. Do whatever it takes to be more mysterious, colorful, or larger than anyone else. In the real world, this means going against social norms. The YouTube famous bodybuilder Ziz did this by taking his shirt off in public and behaving in unexpected ways. Another example is Connor Murphy, a YouTuber whose channel is growing at an insanely fast rate. 
This guy takes his shirt off and does crazy things in front of attractive girls. And with nearly 1 million views per day, he's being rewarded handsomely for it. Law number three, avoid the unhappy and unlucky. Emotional states are just as infectious as diseases, and it might make you feel good to listen to another person's misery, but too much of it will do you more harm than good. We've all had that one unfortunate friend who seems to attract all kinds of bad luck. Hang around them long enough, and all of a sudden, you start getting caught up in the same misfortune. To avoid infection, spend your time around people who are happy and fortunate. Law number four, learn to keep people dependent on you. To be a powerful person, you need to be needed and wanted. The more others rely on you, the more freedom and power you will have. You should make people depend on you for their prosperity and happiness. The game of power applies to most corporate jobs. To use this law in such a setting, you must do whatever is needed to make yourself indisposable. Make it so that the company would lose too much if they fired you. Law number five, when asking for help, appeal to the person's self-interest and never to gratitude or mercy. There will come a time in your life when you'll need to ask someone for a favor. If you approach it from the angle of reminding them of the good deeds or past assistance you've given them, they'll find a way to ignore you. To exercise power, approach the favor with something that will benefit the other person and make it sound like an unrefusable offer for them. Once the person realizes that he stands to gain from the request, he'll be glad to help you. Law number six, pose as a friend, but work as a spy. When playing the game of power in any industry, you need to know your rivals and competitors. As a spy, you can gain priceless information that will allow you to stay one step ahead of the competition. If you're the one playing the spy, learn how to uncover secrets and information about your rivals during polite social encounters. Play this role well enough and you can get the other person to reveal their intentions and even their weaknesses to you. Law number seven, use absence to increase respect and honor. Everything from people to objects is about supply and demand. When the supply is low, the demand goes up. The gasoline that powers your car is a great example. When oil refineries are producing tons of oil, the supply goes up and the price that you pay at the pump goes down. But when the supply goes above the demand, the price per gallon of gasoline goes down. The same is true for people. We've all had a girlfriend or boyfriend, and at first they weren't always available, which increased the demand and made them more desirable to be around. A year later, they started hanging around the house all the time and never really left at all. This caused the supply to increase and our demand for the person started to decrease. Law number eight, know who you're dealing with and don't offend the wrong person. When playing the game of power, you must always know who you're dealing with. This is true for every area of life. The world is filled with many types of people. The strategy you used on one competitor might cause another to spend the rest of their life trying to get revenge on you. Think about the comment section on YouTube. Pick on 10 people and maybe none of them will fight back. But if you don't know your enemies, you might unknowingly start something with someone who has enough knowledge to ruin your life. For a great example of this, watch the movie IT with Pierce Brosnan. Law number nine, play a sucker to catch a sucker. Seem dumber than your mark. Nobody likes to feel dumb. To play the game of power, always trick the other person into thinking you're not as smart as you really are and make your enemy feel smart. Once the person is convinced that they're smarter than you, they'll never suspect your ulterior motives. Imagine you own a tech company and a competitor is working on the same app as you. And upon the release of said app, the company stands to gain millions of dollars. 
your company is working on the same app, but you need more time to release it. By making your competitor think that you know nothing about the app, you can uncover crucial information about his progress and do whatever is needed to make sure you release the app first. Law number 10, recreate yourself. Never accept the role that society has forced on you. Instead, create a new identity for yourself and make sure you command attention and never bore your audience. You must always be the master of how people perceive you and never let others define your personal image. By creating a new identity for yourself, one that isn't forced upon you by society, you will wield great power and your character will seem enormous. Life and business especially can be a giant game of power and the game doesn't care whether you want to play or not and it has no problem playing without you. You and everyone else are already on the board and the opposing pieces are coming to take you out. Use the top 10 laws of power correctly and your chances of winning will increase. With that said, until next time, thanks for watching and be sure to grab yourself a copy of The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. Think back to a time when you wanted someone to do something for you. Maybe you wanted a friend to do you a favor. Maybe you wanted a hiring manager to give you a job that you really liked. Or maybe you wanted to get a better deal on a car you were buying. Every day, humans speak thousands of words without ever really giving much thought into the true power of what they're saying. A famous quote once said, Handle them carefully, for words have more power than atom bombs. And when spoken in the right combinations, words can, quite literally, get anyone to do anything you want. You can take two people who are identical in almost every way, drop them into the world, and tell them to find success. And one person could get dramatically different results than the other. But why? It all comes down to knowing what to say, how to say it, and how to truly make every word count. The right combination of words speaks directly to a person's subconscious mind and influences the main part of the brain that people use to make decisions. What most people don't realize is that the subconscious mind only produces yes or no answers, and it makes decisions quickly. With a few key phrases, you can become incredibly persuasive and influential. And once you've done this, you'll find it much easier to get anyone to do anything that you want. Now, the first power phrase to remember is, I'm not sure if it's for you, but this combination of words allows you to introduce an idea to anyone quickly, easily, and cleverly. And these words instantly tell the person's subconscious that there is no pressure. And by saying that they might not be interested from the start, it makes the person instantly more interested in what you're saying. The key word here is but, and instinctively, we usually pay most attention to what comes after this word. Imagine you're that dude outside of Walmart trying to get signatures for your petition that nobody really cares about. You would say, I'm not sure if it's for you, but do you have a minute to check this petition out? In any situation, when you want someone to do something, just start the sentence out with, I'm not sure if it's for you, but, and simply add whatever it is that you want to ask after the word but. Now the second key combination of words is open-minded and it works very similarly to the first phrase all that you have to do is add this phrase before anything you want to ask for example imagine you want your friend to loan you his motorcycle for a day you would start talking to him and when the time feels right you would say how open-minded would you be about letting me borrow your motorcycle for the day the reason this combination of words works so well is because 90 percent of people view themselves as being open-minded so subconsciously saying no to your request goes against a belief that they have about themselves, which actually makes it very difficult to say no. Now, the next combination of words is like an atom bomb that you can use to win any argument with someone who thinks that they know everything. Think about this for a second. During any argument between two people, 
each person has their own opinion based on a foundation of knowledge that they have about the topic. By confidently calling out the knowledge base of their topic, you can actually force them to doubt their own opinion. And the key phrase here is, what do you know? Imagine you're arguing with someone about how to make a lot of money. The other person thinks that the most money can be made working a typical nine to five wage job. And you think that the most money can be made with an internet business that involves not trading your time for money. You could say, what do you know about nine to five jobs that makes them better than an internet business? Something that's so important to remember here is that the way that you say these words is just as important as the words themselves. And you need to say them in an overconfident way, even if you don't actually believe what you're saying. Imagine some guy is trying to fight you. You could say, do you really think that you could beat me in a very confident way? And by doing so, you will actually cause him to doubt himself and rethink whether he is actually capable of beating you or not. Keep in mind that the more confidently that you say the words, the greater the amount of self-doubt that you will create within the other person. This is actually a major trick that boxers and MMA fighters have been using for years. And if you've ever seen them talking to a reporter right before a major fight, they'll arrogantly say that they are the best and that nobody will ever take away their title. Anytime that you want to win a verbal argument, all that you have to do is call out the other person's knowledge base that they use to form their opinion. And doing this confidently will cause them to doubt everything that they know about the topic. For example, do you really think that you have enough muscle to beat me up? So what do you know about the value of this car? You could say something like, how do you know how much it's worth when dealing with a car salesman? Before we continue, let me ask you a question. How would you feel if by this time next year, you were still stuck with almost no social skills and still having trouble interacting with girls. Now, the next key combination of words that you can use to get anyone to do anything is the phrase, how would you feel if... And I just used it to ask you how you would feel. Chances are, the question that I just asked you about where you would be next year probably made you feel a sense of loss, almost as if you're losing out on something. Something important to remember, every single decision made by every single person on the planet is either to move towards pleasure or away from pain. At its core, this is what every decision is based on. And as it turns out, all humans are more motivated to move away from pain than they are to move towards pleasure. This is one of the key points that you need to remember if you ever want to get into sales. When I first started working out, it was the pain of being skinny and weak growing up that kept me going not the pleasure that I would gain from getting bigger muscles. Imagine you want to persuade someone to work out with you. Say to them, how would you feel if you're 40 years old and still overweight? Or how would you feel if you're 40 years old and still skinny and weak? Maybe you want to motivate someone to start a business or change their life for the better. Ask them, how would you feel if all of your friends from school were super successful and you're 40 years old and still living at home with your parents? This combination of words works because it motivates the person to take an action that you want to either move away from the pain or towards pleasure. And it can be used either way, but the version that highlights the pain works the best. Now, the final key phrase is something that I use in my videos all the time, and it consists of two words. Just imagine. Something that you need to understand is that every decision we make as humans is actually made twice, first in our mind and second in the real world. If a person can't imagine themselves doing something, then they won't do it. It's really that simple. For example, before a girl decides that she's attracted to you, she quite literally must first be able to see the two of you together in her head. When you walk into the dealership to buy a Lamborghini, you don't need to make up your mind because you've already imagined yourself buying and driving it a thousand times because it's an awesome car. Just imagine for a second that you have wings and you're flying through the clouds over a tropical island. 
while I just said that, your subconscious took over immediately, and you probably just imagined exactly what I said. By saying to someone, "Just imagine," you can plant a mental image into their head, and once they've imagined themselves doing it, they'll be more likely to actually do it in the real world. For example, just imagine how powerful and influential you'll be after you're finished watching this video, and imagine how you'll be able to get anyone to do almost anything you want. Just imagine how much you can improve your life and how much more successful you'll be after you watch all of the videos on this channel. A famous quote once said, "Words are free." It is how you use them that may cost you. So make sure that you're not wasting your words when you could be using them to get exactly what you want out of life. And with that said, until next time, thanks for watching. Children who come from dysfunctional families learn to take on roles in order to cope with toxic behaviors in their household. Such upbringings affect their traits and habits they carry into adulthood. Those who come from a background of alcohol or drug abuse experience a turbulent childhood and end up playing certain roles to alleviate the sadness, humiliation, or anger they feel. Family dynamics that include other compulsive behavior such as gambling or overeating, overly strict and religious attitudes, narcissism, and physical, emotional, or sexual abuse may also affect children to take on the same roles. People may identify with more than just one role when they grow up in chaotic households. These are five types of children from toxic families. One, the hero or responsible child. The hero or responsible child is wise and mature beyond their years. They're self-sufficient, perfectionist, overachieving, and seemingly composed. In reality, though, they suffer silently and carry the burden of sadness from their parents' toxic behavior. They're afraid of becoming like their parents, so they learn to be the exact opposite. For example, if the hero has a narcissistic and abusive parent, they usually try to be the favorite child, relying on good performance in order to receive love. Two, the scapegoat or troublemaker. The scapegoat or troublemaker is angry and defensive. At school, the scapegoat is typically the leader within their social group and often get in trouble because that's how they learn to get the most attention. But because they've built walls around themselves out of fear, their relationship with others may be superficial. Toxic parents are usually extremely ashamed of them as they try to convey their situation by acting out family problems that are usually ignored at home. But beneath that hard exterior, they're very emotionally sensitive. They're either the loud, rebellious type or the one easily picked on. And since they've been hurt by their abusive parent, they can be self-destructive. Three, the lost child or dreamer. The lost child or dreamer is invisible within their family and tries to cope with the family's struggles by disappearing and reading books, daydreaming, or watching movies. They rarely get in trouble because everyone sees them as a good kid. It's assumed they also have a good, healthy life at home. The lost child is typically very shy and enjoys having a lot of space and solitude, causing others to view them as loners. Since they're more withdrawn, they struggle to develop important social skills and relationships with others, and often suffer from low self-esteem. Four, the mascot or class clown. The mascot or class clown is usually known as the cute one. They're always ready to lighten the mood with jokes or entertaining shows. Their dysfunctional family makes them feel powerless, so they try to cope by breaking the anger, tension, and conflict with fun and humor. Most mascot children have a friendly disposition and are described as overly nice. Mascot children enjoy helping others because it distracts them from their own problems. Beneath their cheerful demeanor, however, they usually suffer from low self-esteem, anxiety, and depression, 
developing workaholic tendencies to make up for their insecurities. They also find it painful to ask for help when they're hurt, so they put on a brave smile for the world. 5. The Enabler or Caretaker The enabler or caretaker is typically married to an addict, but children can also take on this role. They listen to and console the addict while encouraging other families not to react negatively. Because the enabler doesn't know how to cope with toxic behavior, they make excuses for the addict's alcohol or drug problems and deny such problems exist, masking the family's downfalls to make sure the public sees them as a happy, well-rounded family. Do you identify with one or more of these five types? Is there any advice you'd like to provide to those who come from toxic families? Feel free to share your stories in the comments below. If you... How to deal with manipulative people. Imagine you have a friend. You love your friend, but you realize a few things. They always get what they want, tear down your confidence, and always play the victim. What does this mean? It might mean your friend is an emotional manipulator. So what do you do? Well, lucky for you, we've provided some tips to make sure you don't get played and can hopefully help them in the end. Number one, stopping the victimhood. Maybe you notice that your friend always plays the victim, no matter what happens. Sometimes they might actually not know what they're doing wrong, and thus don't assume responsibility for their actions. Sometimes they're doing it on purpose. This is when the behavior is manipulative. What you do in this case is to keep things light and positive. Slowly let them know that it's okay to make a mistake so they can start to accept responsibility for their actions. Leveling the playing field. If you tell this friend you had a bad day, they'll brush it off and tell you about the time they experienced a monsoon and an alien invasion in the same day. These manipulators get their confidence by putting others down and belittling other people's issues and successes. What you have to do here is to be honest. You tell them, hey, I appreciate you telling me your story, and I'm glad you can empathize, but I just need some advice or comfort or someone to listen. By accepting what the manipulator is doing, you've taken away their power to hurt you, lessening the load. These people pretend to be helpless and always put you on a pedestal, which puts all the pressure on you. The way you can combat this is to slowly put them into positions of decision-making or power. Tell them that you're uncomfortable with the weight they put on your shoulders by making you the leader all the time. At first, they might be mad, but slowly they may appreciate, feel equal, and enjoy taking action. Talk about it. The classic emotional manipulator is known as a triangulator. They'll say anything to get someone on their side. They'll break relationships and even families by pitting people against each other. The more support they have, the more power they feel they have. The best way to stop this is to open channels of communications. Keep talking to your friends and family no matter what the triangulator is saying. This way you're all on the same page no matter what the manipulator says. Stand your ground. This is difficult if you're dealing with the manipulator that steamrolls everything and everyone. Like the Hulk, manipulators can sometimes use anger and even violence to blast you out of an argument. You can't ask questions because they yell and yell. It might be scary, but keep calm, stand your ground, and don't be pushed over. Wait for them to get tired of yelling and then have a proper discussion. It also works to walk away from the manipulator, especially if you feel that you're in physical danger. Healthy skepticism.
if your manipulator always has to make it seem they and their life is perfect, don't buy it. If they say something wrong, call it out. Don't point out all their flaws, but call out that bull. Nobody's perfect, and knowing our flaws is the only way we can grow. Change your language. There's always going to be miscommunication in relationships, but if you're always to blame for getting the message wrong or delivering it wrong, it could be a sign that you're being manipulated. Over time, this treatment can make you afraid to speak up. What do you do to prevent this? Speak in I feel sentences so they can't twist your feelings easily. For example, I feel grossed out by all the old dishes in the sink, not you gross me out by not cleaning the dishes. Know what you want. Flirting is fun. Most of us do it and usually like experiencing it. However, if someone is using flirtation to have everyone admire them with disregard to everyone's feeling, this is a sign it's being used as a manipulation tactic. These manipulators use their charm and sexuality to get everything they want. To block them out, don't fall for their wit and charm. Know what you want and know what they're saying or asking for. Don't get swept away by their flirtatious attitude. Stand up, emotionally. Manipulators that are harsh, heavy, and bash people down to get what they want are often dealing with insecurities themselves. With these people, you need to stand up to them and hold your ground. Know who you are. Don't let them drag you down into insecurity. And finally, sometimes your manipulator just won't stop. In that case, we recommend you cut them out completely. If they're too important to you to let go of, or if you feel you might be physically unsafe, talk to someone in a position of authority. Sometimes you might need some help to deal with manipulators. We hope that by using all the tips we just taught you, you can get out of that manipulative relationship. That's all for now from us here at Psych2Go. Hang tough and hang in there, and don't forget to subscribe for more tips. And we are finally done. I hope all of those clips tonight uh, helped everyone in some type of way. Uh, I put all of these in practice on a daily basis, and it tends to help. You normally get called all kind of names when you do this, but it's a lot better than dealing with the turmoil and the stress of everyone else's problems. So with that being said, welcome to another episode of Real Life, the radio show. I am your host, Jenna Kepra, alongside my partner, my brother, Brother Rise. How are you doing this evening? Hey, peace. Greetings. I'm still learning. Glad to be here with everyone this evening. Um, How's everything on your end? I did not want to do the show today, Uh, especially with the clips that we played. It just kind of amplified a manipulator to go with the ending clip, a manipulator that I love very dearly. He had a, a we had an issue, not he, we had an issue that I have talked about on numerous occasions that he just neglected to handle. And when the people told us to handle it in the time frame that they gave us, I didn't believe that they was joking. And today I found out that they were not. So, you know, I got a heavy heart and a busy mind right now. But we will continue to push on. Uh, 
starting with this willful blindness and I apologize if all of my uh, critiques and explanations go back to the same thing, but that's kind of what I'm focused on right now. But the willful blindness where people know things are in, in a certain order and they just decide not to, not to handle it because either somebody else is going to take over for them, uh, handle that particular problem or just have an understanding within their own brain that it don't matter if they do it, it's going to be all right because they are who they are. And the world doesn't work like that. And again, you know, today I got some information that shows that the world doesn't work like that. I tend to be very, uh, precautious about people that I run into like that. And, and under the circumstance, you know, I learned a lot of this information from dealing with my own family. Uh, so I wanted to start right there, but wherever you like to start, uh, go ahead, my brothers, the mic is yours. Now nah, I'll pick up where you left off and we could just go through them. Um, you know, if you want to, you know, expound on what you want to talk about first and then I'll, you know, bounce it off of you. But um willful blindness, like the the lady said, is something that all people are capable of. But I believe that it became a cultural model with the advent of slavery. Because if you look at the entire slave experience, whether you're talking about here in America or the continent, um, or any place else, the Caribbean, wherever you want to talk about it, there's always a willful blindness. Like, look at Libya. <laughs> Libya is a wholesale slave market where you can buy a black male or female um, adult for about four or five hundred dollars. And not only that, you can do whatever you want with them once you have them. And a lot of them are getting raped and sexually violated, or even murdered and just severely mistreated. This is right now. And the whole planet is pay, pretty much paying willful blindness to that situation. Every so often it'll pop up in the news. I know that um, President Kagame from Rwanda actually just took in about 30,000 uh, Libyan refugees in order to give them a place to stay to escape uh, that, that mistreatment and enslavement. So, I mean, it's not that nothing's being done, but very little's being done or said about it. Um, but I give him, you know, a big up for that because that's just... You know, he's spoken from pretty much a Pan-African perspective. And to me, that's putting your, your you know, your um, behavior where your mouth is in a really profound way. So um, hopefully other countries will also pick up on that and assist in some way. And hopefully they'll just uh, assist in ending that situation in the first place so that there's no need for people to have to run. But this is all a byproduct of um, Obama and Hillary Clinton or Hillary Killerton, as I like to call herself. Um, but the, the thing with willful blindness is that um, we do it all the time. Like when you see those incidences where a black woman is being assaulted and there's black men with cell phones and they're using the cell phone to film the incident but not intervene in any way, um, or just with anybody where you see that that's the case, like you become a voyeur. When you put that camera between you and the, the, the object, what you're doing is you're depersonalizing the situation so that you psychologically don't have to be responsible for taking action in that situation. So there's a lot of things that coming up people couldn't get away with 
as far as abusing people, mistreating people in public without somebody addressing that situation, especially with black people. I used to see that a lot, and I used to involve myself in a lot of that in New York City. So I'm speaking from experience. And nowadays, you can barely get somebody to intervene, even with small issues where it just it takes somebody just, you know, stopping and, and um, what's that? Um, stopping and um, just uh, saying that they're not going to sit there and be a witness to something that's really messed up and try to help somebody. And nowadays, that's the hardest thing to get is constructive help as far as uh, today's society is concerned. So, um, you know, and again, like, like Jenna said, I found the worst forms of willful blindness practiced by family members, just with some of the, the stories that I've heard with family members and things that I've experienced personally with, with family members. And um, like, uh, like he was talking about the manipulators, same thing, you know, and my thing is I've always said minimize contact and minimize conflict. So there's a lot of people that by by uh, societal, basic societal familiar rules I should be close to and I have no contact with them. <laughs> but for a lot of people that I know, they themselves, uh, you know, they're, they're family people. They talk to their mom and dad regularly, things like that. They have siblings they deal with. They have nieces and nephews they deal with. I've severed all of that just because that's what I felt I needed to do in order to maintain my own sanity. And I've been fine with it. I've always said, just based on the way things have uh, developed, that I would rather work on being the best father to my son than worry about being a son to my mom. I'm older. I don't need a mother now. What's up? Hold on a second. Uh, I've been hearing some uh, some shifting or or something. Is that you? No, I'm not moving around. Why? I did hear some noise earlier on a couple of occasions, actually, but I did hear something like that too. Okay, I'll just I'm just checking. Let me. Yeah, you're not crazy, but it wasn't me. Okay, okay, go ahead. My apologies. Go ahead. Continue. Oh, no problem. So I know for some people that's a hard thing to do, but that you know that also comes with just a with just conditioning as far as just the way that we're taught family is supposed to be. And the whole thing in a nutshell is that sometimes for some people in, in, in th- their particular lifetime, that life that they're living at this particular moment, you know, family's not necessarily or may not necessarily be of benefit to them just by the way they maybe behave or think or carry themselves or the way that they treat the other party. All of those things come into play. And when you start to value yourself, then love of no one will supersede your sanity and that's that's just how i look at it i could be incorrect but it's something that has kept me quite grounded and and quite focused on the things that are important to me now does it mean that i don't care about those people of course i do they're my they're my family my sister my father my mother they're family but i love them from a distance they live in their life over there and i wish them the best way they are and doing whatever they choose to do with their lives i wish them health and all that good stuff but for me <laughs> i need to be taking care of my family the one that i handpicked you know just like um i learned this when i was really young from some elders uh back in new york city and they said that uh friends that's why i don't use the term friends lightly friends are family that you handpick yourself so no one can actually predict what family they're going to be born into as far as uh, the form of spiritual practice that I practice. And, um, and there's quite a few other different forms of African spirituality that also have similar beliefs. 
that uh, each child is born is actually an ancestor return. So as far as those traditions are concerned, you don't just live one physical life. You just actually live as a descendant of your prior self <laughs> in some form or fashion. So, um, you know, and you have the option not to return as well. But the bottom line is this. Um, you you have to take personal responsibility to set the quality of your existence. And sadly, sometimes the people you love the most are the ones that are most most uh, hindering in the process of your upward growth and, and ability to really, really um, become one with whatever you may call it if you believe in a, a higher entity or supreme being. So for me, that's what it is. And it doesn't mean that, you know, if they called and needed me for something, that I wouldn't, you know, try to assist them in some way. I would, but I mean, they don't contact me. I don't contact them. They live in doing what they got to do and living good lives. I'm living a great life with, you know, you know, with my family, and that's just what it is, and that's how I look at it. But I would say um, those decisions are personal for people as far as, like, minimizing contact to minimize conflict and um, dealing with manipulative people. Because you're going to find in um, every, rel- every relationship – there's some level of manipulation in some cases. And in most cases, it's innocuous. It's just, um, you know, people trying to get something that they want. Like if you have a child and the child wants a piece of candy and they know they had two pieces of candy earlier and you told them for that day that the limit is two, they might try to sweet talk you. Oh, you know, dad, you're the greatest dad in the, in the world. You know, I love you so much. And they just start running down a list of all the good things that you've done. And then at the end of all of that praise, They'll come, you know, and say, can I have another piece of candy? And in Trinidad, we call that mama guy. So, you know, my mother, I was good with that with my mom. So she would always, you know, when she would get fed up, she would call it out. But other than that, you know, if I needed an extra piece of candy or to stay out a little bit later, I would be able to do that type of stuff. But that's a form of innocuous manipulation. And okay. then you have, go ahead. Real quick. I'm going to need uh-huh. you to adjust your microphone. Uh, okay. Your mic is. How's that? That's uh, get speak to me a little bit more for a second. All right, does this sound better? Yes, it yes, okay, yeah, okay, cool. Okay, I'm holding it in place then, so that's fine. I got it. So, um, maybe that's what it was. You were hearing something, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Okay, okay, so that's what it was. I apologize. Okay, (laughs) so, um, so that's really it. That's a form of innocuous manipulation, and I think we all have our variations of uh malignant <laughs> or negative uh, manipulation. I'm sure we all have stories we could tell about that. But I just wanted to give a, a brief example of just what I would call innocuous is just a child pretty much being a child trying to get a little extra. And, you know, that happens with husbands and wives too. You know, it all depends. It's just on the context of the relationship. But I think every relationship has it. It's just the type of manipulation and is it something that is actually uh, malignant. And if it is, then, you know, you need to nip that in the bud. You know, it's it's it's, it's how human relationships go. You know, back in the, the ancient times, usually if a guy wanted to date a female, he would have to come with a gift of some sort. So it might be, you know, some meat that he was able to procure hunting with um, with the other hunters in his group. Um, it might be some sort of clothing. It might be a piece of jewelry of some sort, but it's always with something. And it kind of sweetens the deal. Like, hey, I'm thinking about you beyond just, you know, just being in your presence or 
let's say, even trying to just get in your pants. <laughs> you know what I mean? So these are all things that, that's a part of human existence. It's just about the context, and um, you have to be able to discern that for yourself. And then also, I think depending on how people react to those things, it also can dictate how you value yourself. So sometimes you have to actually question yourself and say, hey, you know, how important am I to me? <laughs> you know what I mean? And sadly, some people you know, aren't important to themselves, they're able to put other people, you know, in, you know, that they love above themselves. And usually that doesn't, doesn't necessarily work out to their benefit. It might work out that way situationally, but ultimately they'll find that it's a one-sided relationship where it's um, almost uh, parasitic, where they have this relative where all the giving is coming from them and all the taking is coming from the relative and there's no reciprocation over time. Like, you know, and it takes time. You have to get to that cumulative situation so you can look back and then really start to see and it'll give you a, a trajectory that's why when you work in the job that's why they keep records of everything you do and then you'll have your you know your six month meeting with your supervisor and then your yearly meeting and they go through your numbers for the year and they're able to discern patterns based on the length of time that they're monitoring your activity it's the same thing with relationships you know and if you if you do that especially with situation with relationships that are troublesome for you where you have these maybe ongoing issues, you might be able to get to the root cause of the problem and be able to work on it. Or you might say, you know what? Um, I've tried that and I've tried everything I could actually think of to do. So as a result, I think it's best if I minimize contact and it's, you don't got to be rude. You don't got to, you know, tell them off or anything. You just pretty much stop calling. And over time, they'll stop calling you too, <laughs> and eventually they just get the message. If you if you choose not to respond to any contact, then they'll definitely get the message after a few attempts where you just don't call them back at all. They'll get the message. So it all depends. You have to do what what you think is best as far as handling situations. And um, you know, like they said, sometimes it could be potentially violent, and that also takes a level of decision making. Um, because we have family members that kill family members. You know, I think every family has them or has had them at some point in that family's history. So it's just a lot to think about, but only we know what we're actually facing. And that's what makes, um, I think, family relationships so potentially wonderful or potentially dangerous is because family, they know you. They know you most intimately. So the people who know you best usually hurt you the worst. And that's I, I think I most people's experience, but I'll be done with that subject for now, unless you want to add something. No, uh, actually, uh, I mean, I have a lot, but it's, it's so personal. Uh, everything mm -hmm. has shaken out as of yet. So it's going to, like I said, yeah. I really did do the show and I told you that, but brother Scotty has a question. Uh, brother Scotty, how you doing this evening? Oh, I'm doing fine. Hey, Can y'all hear, hear me? Yes. Yes, sir. Yes. Okay. Great to see you too. Yeah, I'm on this uh, uh computer. My phone died while I was listening earlier. Um, okay. Let me, man. I tell you, the universe uh, it, it uh, speaks to me at times, you know, through other mm -hmm. people, or I, I should say, God speaks to me through other people to let me know I'm on the right path, and whatnot. But let me ask you a question, Jenna. Now, you saw, I saw that you liked. Uh, that video I made about um, Bernie Sanders ask uh, uh, Bernie Sanders answers a question on police interaction in a white supremacist manner. I forget the exact title of it, but I saw that you liked it. Did you see that video? Yes, yes, I, I watched it. 
Okay, it's, it's Bernie Sanders gives a white supremacist answer to police interaction question. And I put a question mark because I'm not making a statement. I'm asking a question, right? And so if you saw that, did, did that have anything to do with you picking that intentional blindness? Because that definitely applies to what I was talking about in that, in that video. Would you agree? Well, it actually does, but it but uh, let me explain it because uh, I I tend to uh, check out most things that you do, uh, Scotty. Uh, actually, uh, still waiting on BTI News to uh, to come on live, but that's another. Uh, <laughs> but uh, true, yeah, I checked that out, but I actually didn't pick this. Uh, I was dealing huh? with some stuff this week, and uh, and I believe Roz picked that out because of one of the few situations that I have uh, ongoing currently. So actually rises to think for, uh, for the video clips tonight, but uh, they normally come, excuse me, they normally come from discussions that we have throughout the week as we're getting prepared. And uh, I have a, like I said, uh, some news came down the pipe because of some willful blindness some intentional blindness like you had uh asked me and and it just set up perfectly uh you know well, that's actually, what calling in about was i had never heard that term before and if i had known that term i would have used it last night because sure. i heard the way ross was explaining intentional blindness I think, Ross, if I recall correctly, you were saying, like, we see domestic violence and we just look the other way. We don't even try yeah. to help a sister out or something like that. And I've actually yeah. saw that. In, I was uh, uh, 13 years old in a park in Charlotte playing basketball. I had my mom and her cousin. Um, uh, and, man, this dude body slammed his girlfriend on the hood of a car on her face, man. And, I mean, it's like hundreds of people at the park, man, and everybody was just looking and just kept walking. Nobody tried to help the sister. Um, so I, I saw that in, in, you know, that came to my remembrance, but they're so we're so intentionally blind in a number of areas. Um, yes. For those who didn't see that video, okay, Bernie Sanders was asked a question. I don't know why these black students is asking white politicians for parenting advice, but the question was, um, if I was your son, um, what would you tell me if I'm getting stopped by a cop? So Bernie Sanders said, and I'm just going to paraphrase, he said, first I identify the cop, that means look at badge number and all that, um, make sure his camera's on, make sure it's being recorded or whatnot, ask if it's being recorded. And again, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he was saying, I will respect the process and so you don't get shot in the back of the head. And then he started talking about, and we need police accountability. Um, in this country for the, you know, for these cops that's getting away with stuff. And his platform uh, does speak to how to deal with them cops. But that's, in, but other people, other black people, some of them, I believe, were doing it intentionally. Others, I believe, were fed misinformation where they say, oh, he said, he said, respect the police. You know, this is something that plenty of black parents tell them. But when they say respect the police, they don't mean that you have respect for the uniform or for them. It means conduct yourself in a respective manner so you don't get shot in the back of the head by a murderer with a badge and a gun. Right. You know? yep. and, and so when I presented, um, I was in a conversation with a black woman on Twitter and I presented that she was coming at me saying, oh, he he answered it just like a white supremacist would answer. And I was like, no, sister, 
no, that I, I don't get that. And so I posted his entire comment, and she wanted to be intentionally blind to the truth and wanted to go. Now, I don't know if they were doing She was doing it on purpose, which would be intentional blindness. I'm, I want to paint this narrative, and even though I've been confronted with the truth, I'm going to stick to my lies. That would qualify as intentional blindness. Um, another way that another thing I was thinking about, and I was gonna make a video. I am gonna make a video about it, but I just put it on the back burner. Now, in BTR community, somebody on Facebook had posted this article from 2018, uh, where David Banner, the rapper, um, was on some kind of in internet show, video show, or something. And this was Martin Luther King Day. And this dude going to say that integration was the worst thing to ever happen to black folks, including slavery. Now, that on itself is ridiculous. OK, that's ridiculous. So anyway, I'm like, now, there I posted a video of what black life was like during. See, you got census records. You got um, you got census records. You got stories in newspapers or in books by black scholars of people telling what it was like. You got the black great black migration. Two of them occurred from the South, from the black belt to New York, to Chicago, to Detroit, you know, to the industrial centers um, for yeah. jobs. Now I'm saying now, if we had everything we needed and we had it going on so good that we had our own businesses and we was employing our own people, but integration destroyed all that, then why did those people leave the black belt and go up north for jobs? They even went out west and what have you, you know. And right. then I even, I even in doing further research because I just love the research, man. I don't know. I, I think it was my my god, one of my god brothers just got me into writing at a young age, writing my name in cursive, and I just always like to read, man, in my spare time. And when when we be in school and be in history, which is my favorite subject. While everybody else playing around, joking around at the end of class, I'm in my book reading history. I just, I can't explain why I enjoy it. So anyway, I'm like, you look at the census records, and I looked at the census records. Um, they're online now. From that time period, you know, the average, the average employment, or, uh, or I wouldn't even call it employment, but most black people coming out of slavery and all through Jim Crow, was trapped on them plantations, plantations sharecropping. That was the number one employment for black people was sharecropping. And as this video from Vox showed that many of them weren't even being paid. They was allowed to stay on the plantation and live in a little shack and then just go pick, go back out there in them fields and pick that cotton or, or fruit or whatever, and, and you get to live rent free. Some of them, you know, they got pennies on what they got a, you know, they got a very small amount of what would have been mm -hmm. fair. That's what most of us was doing with sharecropping. And then I share that information. This is data. This isn't something I'm making up. It's in the census right. record. It's backed up by black scholars. It's backed up by the fact that millions of them, not not of uh, uh, ten thousand, not a hundred thousand, millions of them fled. Not only were fleeing violence, but it was no jobs. They didn't want to stay on them plantations, sharecropping, and what have you. That's still slavery. And so I and remember, all, Scotty, yeah. I don't know if you know about this. You probably do because you, you, you read so much. 
but I remember a face-to-face Africa article that talked about the uh, black people down south who didn't even know slavery ended until like the yeah, 1950s or 60s. Like, like, look at that. Like, these people literally thought yeah. all that time that, and that's how big of a country America is. Yeah, like, that's how big of a country America is that you can have an isolated, you know, pocket where people still think, you know, it's, it's um, practically 1864, and they just doing it like that. And, like, they don't know. Like, how it's incredible. That was an incredible article when I read it. But, um, but I just wanted to toss that in there. that's the poverty that, and that's still going on today, bro. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. still so much poverty, especially in the South, but in the city, too, as I was looking at a record number of homeless people dying in Los Angeles on the streets and stuff. Yeah. And finding them dead. But I'm saying, though, I present people with that evidence. Not my feelings, not what I think. Right. But the actual evidence, and they still want to believe that that was some kind of golden age for us. Okay, everybody, yeah. look, my family, my family, because they, I, 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 first of all, my black family, uh, we weren't always black, okay? Um, so uh, Irish, a bunch of Irish farmers, well, these three brothers that came down here um, and bought this land, and then one of them married an Indian woman, and then their children start marrying black people, and now we're black. You know what I'm saying? Now, we still got all mm-hmm. the white ones around here, too. Um, they're called, they're rankings. They're not Reeds, but they're rankings. Reed come from my grandfather. But anyway, okay. any, anyway, they didn't suffer like other black people suffered, man, during that time period, because they were protected, I guess, by their mulatto being mulattoes. And then being in this rural area and what have you. But then I found out this was one of the few counties that allowed black people to own land. They didn't really suffer Jim Crow like Jim. They had segregation like different schools. And I just posted some pictures of my mom's school because she said our schools weren't tore down. Like I showed her pictures of other schools um, in the South. You know, that's why the dude was fighting it for board. Uh, what is it, Brown versus Board of Education? Not so yeah. his child could go to school with white people, but he like, I live in this community. This is the closest school. I'm paying taxes here. Why am I going to put my daughter on a bus and send her over to a broke-down school? You know what I'm saying? Right. If you look at those, those pictures, man, the roof was leaking. They had rats. They might not have had heat in the winter. Them white people was taking their taxes and not putting it into the schools. It wasn't like mm-hmm. that for my mom. I posted some of them pictures, man. They they had brand new brick building when when they opened that school up, and unfortunately they didn't close it down. Now uh, black people was mad because it should have been set as a historical um, um, marker. You know what I'm saying? Um, but yeah. I mean, I posted pictures of those classrooms. My mom said we had everything we needed, but this was a prosperous black community, and unlike Tulsa. It didn't get burnt down. They didn't get run off. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like so yeah. that's what I mean to say is even when I present when you present people on that subject or we didn't have it going on like you think we had it going on, uh these myths and what have you. We didn't get rep that's why we want reparations, dog. If we had it right. going on, then there would be no need for reparations. And I call that intentional blindness. Now that's a new term that I didn't picked up. But that's what that is. Yeah. It's been presented with the facts. I'm gonna believe the myth. Yeah, and there's a lot of a lot of people, and sadly, a lot of black people that live just like that. Matter of fact, 
there were a couple of videos I hey. saw that actually discussed Donald Trump in that context, and it is actually horrifying when you see how much he just he and some of his his highest ranking cabinet members are like this dude. He goes to the daily briefing for president, and he literally ignores facts. Like he'll just walk around and pontificate on whatever he thinks the situation is, even though like he has the like you said the actual evidence because you know it's his those people's um, job to actually make sure he has like up to the minute information about certain world events, certain events in the country so that he can make informed decisions throughout the day. And he would, they they said it. Yeah. Yeah. The daily briefing. And and he would ignore straight up information to just go on his, whatever mental tangent he's on. And I'm like, yo, it happens all the time. One Uh last example, since you brought up Trump. But look uh-huh. at the 2016. Look at 20. Now, granted, 200,000, what I believe primarily black people were purged from the New York City voter rolls. And being mm-hmm. in an area where you got a lot of Hispanics, somebody had their database and changed their registration so they couldn't vote in the Democratic primary. So, so, but still, though, still, though, with Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton. Now, you know you was confronted with this evidence. This woman then called us super predators. Talking about yep. bringing us to heel, then then call people welfare lazy of uh, single mothers on welfare to help push the cuts to welfare during her husband's administration, and 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 then you know then they uh, brought in the private prisons and and um, uh, incarceration exploded during the Clinton administration. She was right there. She wasn't like Michelle Obama. She wasn't like Michelle Obama, where I just do some exercise and and promote exercise to children and healthy eating. No, she okay. was like she was like she was Bill Clinton's real vice president. It wasn't Al Gore. It was Hillary Clinton. And yep. then you confronted with all this evidence, and ninety percent of black people still vote for Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. A man who marched on Washington, you know, D.C. for for economic equality and jobs, who got Our arrested, who got who got arrested uh, and, and chained up in a paddy wagon with black people in Chicago fighting for equal housing, and then he's Jewish. They were being discriminated against too. Um, if you listen to the Sundown Towns, which I listen to on the cows, and how yep. Jews are also facing, so this man got a record of fighting for poor, poor people and oppressed people, you choose Hillary Clinton over this man. That's, that's Stockholm syndrome. That's intentional blindness. You that, yeah, willful blindness, you're right. <laughs> the damage that the Clintons did to our community because I guess a bunch of talking heads and, and what have you was buck dancing for her and you just going to do what they tell you to do instead of looking at the history and the evidence and the record of who was going to be in the, who was really sincere about trying to help poor people in this country. That's all I wanted to share, bros. I'll, I'll sit back and listen. Now, nah, well, hold oh, on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, go ahead, Dennis. Because, <laughs> like, I was, I was trying to just sit back. I have to disagree with both of them. <laughs> Uh, especially with the uh, the Hillary Clinton. Let me start with the Hillary Clinton thing. I, I don't think it's willful blindness on the part of black people. I, I think that we give them too much power for what we know. It's a lot of black people that had never heard that super predator comment until it was replayed because we don't watch the news like that. I mean, I hate to say it, but that's just the truth. We don't pay attention to none of that until the times come up, until the times come up to where it's uh, trendy for us to see that. 
I have aunts but, but, who grew but, up. But, but, Jen, I don't mean to interrupt. Listen, bro, we got the internet. I had a lady call in who listened to Black Talk Radio Network. Hold on, before, before you say that, before you say that, Scotty, we, okay. we do have the internet. But how many times have you got into a, uh, because all of these people are not just uh, strong and wrong, like Roz say. People mm-hmm. are not going to look for that stuff. They are arguing with you based off of their emotions when you are trying opinion. to some facts. And you cannot have a conversation when you're doing that because they are going off of how they feel at the moment. They are not taking the time to uh, press in the, uh, the letters to figure out what exactly they need to know. They only are addressing a gut feeling that they're feeling at the time. So when they campaigning for. Go again. Obama was campaigning for. Exactly. And Uh see, and that's all based off of feeling. It has nothing to do with facts, nothing whatsoever. So when when you are uh, having these conversations with people and you clearly present some facts and they they are they are uh operating off of willful blindness in that moment but when they uh when they initially start that conversation they have no idea what you're talking about and the reason i can i know that you know this is because when you have these i didn't see you in some of these threads and you will ask questions and the questions will never get answered it's not because they don't want to answer the question they just don't know the answer and they refuse to give you the to satisfaction. Yeah, you have to entertain the question. And then admitting that they're wrong. So we have to always be able to uh be aware and notice when we in the uh when we are dealing with people like that, because there's no sense to keep arguing with some well, uh what's the uh, saying that uh when two fools uh when you're arguing with somebody from a far away, you can't tell who's the fool or something like that. You know, yeah. that's, that's actually <laughs> yeah. going on. So, so yeah. I, I disagree with you on that part. And I uh, go ahead and you about the Trump. With them. Um, like on that video, when I showed her, the, I gave her a screenshot of his actual quote and she wanted to keep on. I just oh. said, you're being disrespectful to me now. You know, mm-hmm. and so you just have a blessed day. And I just cut it off right there. You have to do that. Cause then you look like a fool continuously uh repeating the same thing. That's that's we talk about this all the time. That's that's being uh that's being insane. You repeating the same thing, it's expecting a different result. It's clear that they do not know the history. Then when you show them the history and they uh and they decide that they're going to continue on with what they feel it should be rather than what it is. What's the point of uh, continue, uh, continuously arguing? Now, here's my other disagreement with uh, with the Trump thing. And Rise, you already know, we had this conversation. <laughs> uh, he's not willfully ignorant. Uh, willfully ignorant. Yeah. <laughs> he's not willfully uh, blind, blind. In it either. He has a... Uh, he has a particular way that he goes about things. And when they tell him something and it goes against what he's trying to do as far as, uh, as far as making money, because that is exactly what he's doing. Uh, 
although they didn't had this all in the paper about his family still making money off of the government since he's been in office, he has not stopped that one bit. And a lot of the information that he uh, receives from the government, whether it be right or wrong, we're not even talking about that point, but whether it be right or wrong, he goes with what's going to make him the most money. So he's, he's not, uh, he's not willfully ignorant on that. He's just completely uh, ignoring it. He, he has, that does not go with his, uh, that does not go with what's going to make him money. So he goes against it. He's very aware about these things because he has talked about them in the past. A lot of times these issues come up before he was in politics and he uh, made complete sense, whether you like him or not, he made complete sense in the past prior to his uh, political, uh, his political campaign. But now he knows that he has these, uh, these suspected racists all over the country. And sometimes what was needed for the country is not what these suspected racists want. And he goes with that. So I, I, I just can't believe that he's operating off a of, uh, willful blindness. I believe that like more like what you said, this is, this is very, very intentional, but it's monetary based. That, Actually, we did talk about that um, actually earlier today. Um, yeah, I, I, I have to agree with that. I was saying the context in which um, some of the willful blindness was shown was using him as, as an example. Um, but yeah, I have to agree with that. The thing with Donald Trump is he's a narcissistic, psychopathic kind of dude. And even when you look at the fact that most, uh, a lot of psychopaths are people who run Fortune 500 companies and big time, um, big time corporations, and that he's like textbook. So for him, just with the personality type, his background, and um, his racist inclinations, you know, for him, it's his way or the highway, and it's all about the dollar for, for him, of course, as we all know. So I have to agree with that um, completely. It's to me. The people who most black people wouldn't dare willfully be blind to are white people. And the people who we can find ourselves being perpetually willfully blind to are other black people. We don't have no sympathy for other black people. A lot of us hate other black people, and it shows in what we say and how we do. I just posted an article. I tried to put it on BTR Community, but it wasn't going through. But um, it was an article that talked about this rapper who was at a battle, the battle rapping situation. And he was uh, rapping about the, his opponent's aunt who died. And pretty much he said that he wished he could bring her back just so he could be the one that took her life. And then he um, further just said the most horrific oh. things about her and then spit on her, a photograph of her in front of her relative, crumpled it up and threw it on the floor. And then his opponent shot him in, shot him in the parking lot and killed him. So self-hatred, I've said this a thousand times, black people have made a religion out of hating black people. And to me, that display of such horrific disrespect of that man's deceased relative, his aunt, I mean, it was so horrible to watch the video. I was cringing and I'm an MC and I'm a battle MC, but I was just like, this is, this is something that it, it was just shocking to watch. 
And yeah, I mean, the way he spit on her photographs, the way he crumpled it up and threw it on the floor, I thought he shot him in the face in the battle. I thought he, as soon as he did that, he got shot. That's what I expected. But he literally, they said he went in the parking lot, got a gun from the vehicle who came in, and shot that guy to death. And I'm like, that's the, that's the thing. Like, we've taken the ability to be callously disrespectful to each other to a level that is unprecedented in human history, in my opinion. Why is it the only genre where you have such competition where people can say such horribly disrespectful things is a black genre? You don't see that in country. You don't see that in rock and roll. You don't see that in grunge. You don't see that in death metal. You don't see that in in, um, EM. You just don't, you don't see it anywhere but with us. And when you, when you go back to the origins of that, it really has to do with hatred. A lot of people don't understand. Bruh, bruh, talk, we yeah. don't control it, bro. We don't control that industry. They purposely You're absolutely right. Go, yeah, we talked about that. This white mm-hmm. rapper, uh, what's that white rapper now? Macca, Macklemore or something like that? Macklemore, yep, that's him. Yeah, he got called out because he told the truth. He said that these white people that run the industry Go to the go to the black community and find the mm-hmm. poorest black person who might have some rhyming skills, and then uh, use them to push that type of message. Yep, I agree. Um, I was in the business, so I know how that goes. Um, I don't know if anybody got to see the infamous clip of Bobby Schmurder auditioning for record label executives when he first got his record deal. He was like on um, performing for them in an office. And they had him standing on an office table, an oak table. They're sitting around the table. So look at male and female white executives all sitting around the table. And he is feeling the most anti-black killer nigga music you ever want to listen to in your life. Negro. And these white people are watching him captivated by his wordplay of black death. And you can see the discomfort on his face. He almost looks like he's on an auctioning block. I swear to God, all I could envision was like Wall Street, because where they actually used the gavel is where they actually used to sell black people. So when you see them bang that gavel, it used to be a black person or a black family or a black woman or a black baby right next to that white man. And he'll be like, so that's what they used to do there. And when he did that, it reminded me of that, because I always imagined the discomfort of our ancestors standing there butt naked, having somebody inspecting them ramming their fingers in their mouth and in their private parts and all these kinds of things and looking at them and, and pointing out, you know, the size of their breasts or the size of their member. And all these white men are watching, they're bidding for this human being, the discomfort. That's what he looked like to me, if you've ever seen that video. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's incredible to see because when you talked about, Scotty, the fact that this is it's, it's the fact that we don't run anything, you couldn't be more correct. We talked about the fact that, you know, record label executives and government officials got together when they started the private prison complex, and they said they needed bodies to fill those prisons. And they wanted those record label execs to start putting out toxic rap music specifically in order to get bodies to fill those prison beds. That's how it was described. And some of those those white execs said, what about the lives that we'll be ruining? These are black and brown lives that we'll be ruining by propagating this sort of narrative. And they said through the music, they will be able to create a culture in which they put themselves in prison. And we now have the bodies to fill the beds. And a lot of these private prison corporations have contracts where they have to keep at least 90% of the beds minimum filled with bodies. 
Right. So you, you're hearing stories of people doing little stuff in junior high school, like just acting out like children do, and they end up in juvie, and they're in a freaking prison for children. Like, I've seen documentaries on it. It's mind-blowing the stuff some of these children are going to jail for. And, it, and the thing about it is, it's not just black children. Everybody's a slave. Like, that's the whole thing. Like, even though we are the ones that are the lion's share of people in there, the bottom line is that, like, everybody's a slave. Also, the, so a lot of the documentaries, it was white children sitting in those prisons, and they were like, yo, I've been here for a year, and I just want to go home to my mom. Like, I mean, it's incredible. And I'm just like, wow, this system is, has ratcheted up on a level that's unprecedented. And I think because a lot of white people are blinded due to, the, to, due to white supremacy, they don't even see the sacrifice of their own children due to the country's capacity to practice racism and be destructive to human life. They're so caught on the white thing that they're even fooled while their children's lives are being ruined too. Like they don't see like, yo, the same problems that the black people got across the way, I got right here. I can't find a job. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there paycheck to paycheck about to lose my house too. They, you know, they throwing my children in the juvie hall and in the jail, just like what's happening to them. They can't connect on that. And that goes back to Bacon's rebellion. 1681, when white people were invented. They, before that, go ahead. Uh, after you make this point, let's move on to the to the next one. Uh, and can you, oh, uh, you might, you might once again. Like it's, oh, it's I'm, acting up? My bad. Is that better? Yeah, that's that's great. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I was just saying, um, before 1681, the history is there that white folks and black folks lived alongside each other. They used to intermarry regularly. They worked together and all of that stuff. And once Bacon's Rebellion happened, they had to make sure that there was no rebellion with both groups together against the people in power because that's what it turned out to be. And that's when the creation and invention of white people started. And after that, we, we, literally it spread like a disease. So now the toxin that was born in America, like I said, America's most valuable export is white supremacy and racism. Germany learned it from America, and the rest of the planet learned it from America. So I'll put it like that. We can move on. Yeah, uh, real quick, uh, for those of you that's listening online, as well as those that are on the uh, call, if you have any questions or comments, you give us a call. That number is 719-284-5271, and the PIN is 7637. Uh, press star star. Is that correct, or is it uh star six one? I I can't. It's star star. Star star to open up your mic if you have a question or comment, and we'll get to you as soon as possible. Um, going speaking about the school prison pipeline, it was uh that next clip that we had American High School the chaos. That was it was it was interesting to say the least. Because uh Patterson, New Jersey is a is a rough is a rough mm -hmm. not only in New Jersey but just the country in general. I've heard a lot I don't know anybody in Patterson. Uh I've been I'm through there sure. a couple of occasions. It's not nice in certain areas, it's real bad. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a lot of things that's going on just in the city in general. So you can imagine how the schools would be. But there's also a lot of racism in Patterson as well. And uh, I heard a lot of it through the interview, although a lot of his comments are true. 
they are very true and and just dealing with that all over the country with children since we have since we as parents have been stripped of our power to discipline our children and what have you you know they have set it up to where those children can go to the school with no fear of of hands being put on them by the parents and just go crazy and then we complain when the uh, slave catchers come up there and mistreat them that I wanted to point out that that video was published in uh, on November 2014. Yes, because I don't want nobody to be confused about the slave catchers putting their hands on our children today. That is no longer the case. Uh, when I was when I was in school and I had got out of school uh, <laughs> sometime before uh, 2014, but the uh, the truancy officers is what they called them when I was in school. They yep, had no problems kicking out, but like no problems whatsoever. Then they didn't they didn't pull out their guns or none of that. If you had a problem and they tried to grab a hold to you and you yanked away, they they got into boxing mode. If you thought that you could whoop the truancy officer, you had your chance. It was a few people who was good enough to uh, throw with them. It was quite a few who were not. But also at that same time, those truancy officers knew the uh, families of those children as well. Yeah. And they would give them children, uh, they would give those children time to kind of uh, relax and be like, yo, you really want to do this? Because after we get started, I don't want to hear uh, I'm only 16 or I'm only 17. Like they would talk to us like that. And I've seen, I've seen some of my, uh, my uh some fellow students get speared through into uh vending machines bro uh breaking tables with the children because they was trying to fight you know back during them days it was us as the children who was provoking these actions uh i mean if i'm gonna be completely honest because we thought you know we was we was teenagers smelling ourselves and we brought that upon ourselves I can't say that's true and I can't say that's false for today. Uh, my teenagers that I have that, that are in school, they don't, they don't deal with that kind of situation at the school that they go to. And neither does my, uh, my adolescent children. So uh, people tend to be, people tend to be kind of uh, even keel as far as their attitudes. Uh, the parents are not always the best people to deal with but they do have some control over their children. But I do know in other schools, like the one that I grew up in, the children have no self-control. And they listen to certain people, but slave catchers are not one of those people that they listen to. Uh, I want to go over a few of the things that, uh, that he discussed. Uh, He said the average the average days out of school that these children that was getting put back in was 33 days. So they was missing 33 days out of the school year and they were still being promoted. Uh, He said the purpose for that was to keep the numbers up. So the school could keep on getting those grants. I've seen that happen, whether, uh, whether they put the student in what they call in school suspension, which I found out uh, yesterday because I went to uh, the teacher's, the Tennessee Department of uh, the Tennessee Department of Education they had a uh, they had an open mic session to where all of the parents could go 
and hear what the teachers was discussing as far as the uh excuse me how how the laws and stuff were being implemented this year uh what laws uh were being changed what laws would you like changed and it was oh, like a town to, hall. say again i was saying you're talking like a town hall that's what it sounds like yeah, yeah it was basically a town hall yeah so okay. the sickening thing about that is though is that it was it was very few parents black or white who showed up so what we had was a bunch of uh bunch of uh teachers saying what they thought should happen and when i first got there i kind of just uh i i scanned the room i found there was quite a few black male teachers there but they were all huddled up and at one table because they were sectioned off into groups uh nobody was put in any particular group they would you could just choose where you wanted to go and although i understand the psychology of being around people that look like you a lot of those uh black male teachers were all grouped up together and likewise a bunch of the all white female teachers was all grouped up together so me just uh on my counter racist code knowing that mostly white uh, women are running these classrooms in school i went to the table that had mostly white women i think there were three black teachers that was uh three black female teachers that was at the table with all of these white female teachers so i went over there and as soon as i got there i continuously heard integrate 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 uh from this one white teacher and she didn't never make no specifics about what she wanted to integrate that was it was just a reoccurring word so when i started giving my input about what i thought should be implemented uh one of the first things that I mentioned was the diodes. And, you know, we done done a show on that about the, uh, yep, the, uh, couple. the waves coming off of the computer, uh, causing cancer and what have you. So I, that was the first thing that I uh, mentioned and nobody in the room knew what I was talking about. Now they're all for handing out these, uh, laptops for our children to work on, but have no, at least they, claim not to have any understanding about the medical issues that can occur from that constant uh presence of uh of microwaves so i brought that up and then they started they started paying attention to me like as soon as i mentioned that because they went into their phones of course you know they have their little pocket computers so they went into their phones to uh, figure out what i was talking about and like everybody had this wild look over their face uh, as if they didn't realize that their cell phones was giving off uh, microwaves as well. Mm-hmm. So it was just things like that, the chaos that goes on. So who's to say that those microwaves are not causing some of these uh, anxieties in the children with all of the uh, electronics and what have you that they have? And, and then the lead in the water. And the water. Yeah, I meant to bring that up. They're drinking from I- fountains. Yeah, they're drinking from fountains. They're not bringing no bottled water in Paris or New York. They're drinking from fountains. And we know that pretty much all the major cities have problems similar and in some cases worse than what's going on in Michigan. I know New York right. is one of those cities where the situation is actually worse than what they're dealing with in Michigan. And like um, Amiri Baraka, Ross Baraka, he, um, he's given out like uh, filters, like like home filters for the families and whatnot and all this craziness. But yeah, 
So I just wanted to put that out there. Go ahead, finish what you were saying. Nah, thank you, because that was something that I uh, throughout all the confusion, I I kept having to check the uh, I kept having to check some of the answers that the teachers were giving because it sometimes it didn't have anything to actually do with the children. So mm-hmm. it was an interesting experience. I should have recorded like I normally do, but I kind of I was. It was sporadic for me. The last thing I want to talk about that I want to address rather with this, uh, the high schools. Is yeah, I'm going to speak on it after you. Right. Uh, yeah, I already knew. But the last thing I wanted to address is that the gentleman that was being interviewed from his mannerisms, if you watch the video, he was very clearly uh, jealous and racist. And you mm-hmm. could hear that when he was talking about how he doesn't have any money, but yet these students uh, was coming coming in with their flamboyant clothing and shoes. So we have to always be aware of those type of teachers that that are dealing with our children because sometimes, believe it or not, sometimes our children aren't doing anything. Just the way that they dress could be a target from some teacher who is barely making it because they really do not make that much money and they barely making it. And they see these children come in and they hate them solely and based off of the, their economic standing. So that's why they don't want to hear about the, uh, they don't want to hear about any of the problems that they have to deal with because they looking at how they dress. Never mind if they, uh, if that child is out, has a family member that's selling drugs, not saying that I, I'm promoting that or what have you, but it's always something going on. They could be a family of boosters for all we know. And we know boosters wear a lot of nice stuff and can't pay their rent. So it's, it's a lot of things that go into that, but just him seeing that they have things puts him on edge from the get go. And anything that happens could be a cause for your child to fail uh, or get hurt, especially nowadays with them just slamming out. If they slamming our daughters on their head, what you think they're going to do to our young man? So with that, and I'm going to uh, give us some of them guns. And let you uh, address what you wanted to address on that as well. No problem. Um, a lot of what he described sound like the school I went to in high school. Because that type of stuff used to happen all the time. You'd be sitting in class, somebody, you know, got beef with you from a day or a week before, and they tell you, yo, I'm going to see you. And you're sitting in class and, you know, groups, like you said, walking from class to class, they see who they're looking for, they open in the door, and it's going right there on the spot. I've seen that myself. Um, and I remember my school was one of the first schools in New York to have um, metal detectors put in them. And mind you, uh, Aviation High School was like one of the, had some of the smartest people in the city at that school. And they, they used to make people take a test to get into that school. But because there was no legal precedent set for the test, parents protested so that people didn't have to take a test to get in anymore. And that had started a few years before I actually got there. And once that happened, that's when, and, and, and it used to be an all boys school. So the majority of the school was male and there was maybe, um, it was maybe like 1200 students total and maybe about, 400 of those are females the rest were male so um so a lot of the things he described was happening in that school and a lot of the trouble started once they took the test away 
But even with the test being taken away, they still had some of the smartest people in the city. It was just that a lot of them also were into the streets at the time because it was the crack era and a lot of things were happening. So um, it, 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 it was a very similar existence, but I would just say a lot of the things that had my school in that state back then is exactly what has this school in the state it is right now. And the crazy part is, like, um, you know, you would think because of all the criminal activity that the school had, like, really ignorant people or dumb people, they were really smart. One of the um, the, Brooklyn Tech is one of the um, top schools in in New York State, let alone the city itself, and you have to take a test to get in, but there's a legal precedent set for that test. And that's where one one of New York City's biggest gangs in its history started, was at Brooklyn Tech with some of the smartest young black children in the city. That's where it started. The Decepticons started right there. And it spread throughout the entire city like a virus by the time I was in my, my mid-teens and all the way through my early 20s. So it, it's, it's really um, about children not getting what they need out of the programs and rebelling. It's the racism of some of the teachers. It's the lack of funding being given to the schools. We used to have gangs that would actually rob schools. Some of the people we ran with used to do that too, the other schools. But actually, we had a couple of gangs run up in our school and try to rob everybody. I mean, that type of stuff was the stuff that was happening. So it was either stuff happening in the school between students or outside forces coming into the school. Um, you know, it was crazy. It was just a, a free fall of, of activity all the time. And, and, and our school wasn't the only one, but it was one of those schools that was in the papers uh, semi-regularly. And then it was only probably maybe three graduating classes after mine was when all of that started to taper off and it just kind of went back to its old reputation of being a really good school. You just didn't have to take a test to get in anymore. And it still is to this day. So, you know, it was an interesting experience, but a lot of what he describes, you know, people having sex in the hallways used to happen at the school, all that stuff used to happen at the school. So, um, you know, it's really about, to me, especially with all the stuff they're teaching our children, it's more about, um, homeschooling to me i think that is going to be essential i think grandparents might be essential in that process since you know hopefully they won't be working so they'll have the time and of course they i'm sure they would prefer to teach their grandchildren themselves than have them go into a school and learn about things you don't want the school teaching your child which is a lot of what's happening in schools across the country so um that's what i'll say about that i think but I just had to get in that, yeah, my school was very similar to a lot of what he described. And um, it's, I think it's the same thing because black, black areas, low-income areas are pretty much neglected. That's a, just a historical reality. So it's just one generation to the other. And, you know, the city planning area pretty much plots where all the worst situations, schools, housing, all of that's going to be. And they plot where all the nice areas are going to be. And they make political decisions that put people where they want them in a given time. That's what they do. Well, we got what you say. We have to, we also have to add that the zoning, that zoning mm-hmm. you was talking about, but there are, we have a chance to vote on that as well. And yes. just like we didn't have a turnout for the actual uh, teachers town hall. We don't have turnouts when they're voting for the zoning to, to keep them from, uh, Re, redirecting the zoning. Uh, for instance, uh, right now here in Chattanooga, we have they have passed the law because nobody went to go vote on it. So they passed the law to where they're going to tear down 
a lot of the older schools, which needs to happen. I'm not saying that that doesn't need to happen, but they are rezoning the school, the children in those schools to rival schools. So you, you have a school on the east side that, that might be uh, Bloods and Gangster Disciples, but then that school is going to get tore, tore down and they're going to send them to the school that have Bloods and Vice Lords. Like, of course, it's going to be a conflict. It's going to be a conflict. But nobody pays that any attention until the first person gets stabbed or or until somebody gets shot. You know, but you could just mention those four different gangs and you know that they already have a a prior history. What the history is about makes no difference. You know that there's a a prior history there. Yet you allow these people to send your children into that dangerous area. We can't blame everything on them because we play a big part when we don't play a part. And and I think that's very important to know that a lot of the stuff that we play, especially here on this program, whichever episode of the programs that you are looking at or listening to, rather, you always have to, put yourself in that position to where you are aware what's going on. And then you have to do something because if you don't do nothing, then, you know, you, you essentially helping them out with, with their end agenda. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm wrong, by all means, please, somebody correct me. I I could be wrong, but if I am, I, I would like to hear uh, what you think. Uh, we have a, yeah. is that call in Georgia? Did you just open your mic or? Okay. I, I don't think so. Uh, but going on to the next co- topic, uh, managing your time more effectively. Uh, that clip, I thought that was very important because we all like to procrastinate, uh, whether we like to admit it or not. And I think that goes back up to the initial clip uh willful blindness to where if we have enough time if we have enough time we we feel excuse me let me speak for myself because everybody don't do this but if i have enough time to do something i will cut that time all the way down into the very last to the very last moment sometimes not on everything but on things that i don't think that's important and mind you, a lot of the stuff that we have to be responsible for, a lot of us don't find any priority in that other other than the fact that it has to be done, whether it's for a job or, or if it's for somebody else. We don't have that much priority attached to it. So we wait until it's close to being due before we attack it. So I think that's part of that willful blindness that we was talking about that we all have in our own lives, how we just uh, push things to the side until it absolutely has to be done. As far as that clip, that's all I, I got some notes, but I think that that kind of covers everything that I was going to say. What you got for that, Ross? Um, I think one of the things he said that stood out, because I actually wrote it down, was when he said to um make a clear deadline in order to avoid procrastination. So let's say even if you have time to do something, like let's say you have 
because uh, my son's actually dealing with some of this type of stuff uh, now that he's uh, in graduate school working and whatnot, doing work. Um, where, like, if let's say you have a paper that's due on, on uh, Friday, but instead of waiting until Thursday to do it because, you know, you figure that you, 24 hours is enough time for you to get it done, you might say, okay, I know it's due Friday. Today is the Saturday before. And, you know, you give yourself until, let's say, uh, Wednesday, and you'll say, you know what, I'll complete it on Wednesday. So that way, if there's anything I need to fix between Wednesday and Friday, I can do that, but I want to make sure that it's completed um, on Wednesday, and then I'll just reread it again just to make sure there's nothing, nothing to clean up. Then there's no pressure on you. It's already taken care of, and then you can put your time towards other things. But usually if you do have something that you're waiting to do because you have this excessive time, it's always weighing on you. It's always in the back of your mind. Even though you're doing other things, it's going to spend some time at the back of your mind, maybe not all the time. But like when you're making decisions, that, that decision that's being left unaddressed is always going to pop up into your mind whenever you're doing an inventory of your decision-making for what you're planning out for the next week. So the idea is that if you have, if you have um, time to do it, set a clear goal and um, try to make it earlier than the due date, but if it's, if you have a decent amount of time, you don't have to rush to do it. Um, I would say, in my opinion, this is me. If it's a lot of work to do, then I'll try to do it earlier um, rather than later. But I would just say, yeah. And and when he said that, like set a clear a goal, because usually if you don't set a deadline, then it never gets done because you constantly push it back. And you say, I can do it later. I can do it later. I can do it later. And um, to avoid that, just set a clear goal for yourself. Make sure it's prior to when it's really due, and then get it done. Yeah, because most of you don't have to think about it. Most of the time, it goes with priority as well, because like I said, it's it's not it's nothing that we prioritize, so we allow that time to be filled. Now, let me read this because I didn't hear this during the clip. Uh, Okay, Parkinson's law. The actual Mm -hmm. definition is work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. And I, I just wanted to put that out there just in case somebody else, cause I might've, I might've was thinking about something and it passed me when it, when they did say it in the clip, but I don't recall them uh, giving a definition for it. But once again, work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. And that's why he was talking about if you have a large amount of time, it'll take you a large amount of time to complete it. And if you have a short amount of time, you will go ahead on and take care of that. But if we prioritize uh, what we would like to do and say it has nothing to do with the job whatsoever, then we could just get the job out the way. That way we'll have enough time to to mess off with whatever it was that we wanted to do. Whether we're talking about the video games like he was talking about, it could be mm-hmm. going to the shooting range, it could be playing with your children or chilling with your spouse. But if we get that thing out the way first, and just be done with it, we could solve a lot more problems. Uh, you got anything else to add to that, Roz? Or, or yeah. callers and listeners? Um, one thing I could say is, like, I like to watch a lot of, like, documentaries and, and nature programs. And I've seen so many instances where they'll go to the African continent and they might be dealing with a particular ethnic group that's living, a, living off the land in a traditional style. And they'll have 
their day set up for what they have to do, tend to the cattle, um, maybe make uh, bricks if they're building a new structure in certain parts of the um, continent where they make them out of uh, mud brick, things like that. Um, and they might have a set set time for them to do it. And I always notice even if they had, let's say they could have waited an extra 24 hours to do that particular chore, they just knock it out that day. Right. And what it does, it just it helps them preemptively start for something else down the road. So they're always thinking of ways to make the future a little less burdensome if they are able to complete something early. No so way. To me, it's, it's right. It's the modern lifestyle that sets that. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, us not understanding that even though life is cyclical, it is also linear. Um, so when I say that, I mean, uh, you know, sadly, human beings in this physical form, we live a dualistic existence where there's always something and there's always a spectrum between two objects so it's always you know light or dark up or down right or left in and out back and forth you know all of that stuff is always one or the other and um when life is cyclical but it's also linear and because we're we think especially when we're young that we have all the time in the world we always put things off and it's easy to put things off and just say yeah, I'll do it next time. I'll, you know, I'll get it tomorrow. And then what happens is as you get older, you start to realize just how short that lifespan really is. <laughs> and then you try to make up for the stuff that you thought you could get away with doing later that you never got done. Or there's just certain things that you never accomplished because you've let enough of your life pass where you've wasted time that now that the time is getting short, time is now your priority. When you're young, time is not your priority. So the idea is that to me, if you make your time your priority, you're going to want to be have that time as freed up as possible because we live in a world in which free time is is um, is not a uh, it's not a it's not a, a regular thing. <laughs> like having time to yourself in this world, when you work in a job or even if you have your own company, these things take up so much of our time that we very have very little time to let let loose and kind of wind down and, and, and get some inner peace before moving on to our next project, there's always a project. So the idea is that if there's anything you could do that will allow you supplemental time that you can dedicate to yourself, give yourself some solitude or read a particular book or, you know, take a trip that you always wanted to take, but you never really took the time to do it, whatever it is, but something that's about, you know, either spending quality time with family or spending quality time with yourself. And, that should be a priority. Make your time, because your time is all you got. It's like, really, your time and your health. Those are, the, I think, the two biggest priorities in existing in the physical form. You want to make sure that the vehicle you've got is in the be- best functional order as possible, and you want to make sure that you don't waste a second so that when you get to the end of your particular linear lifespan, because it's cyclical and linear at the same time, you can say I've accomplished or, or at least attempted to accomplish as much as I could have. So when I close my eyes, I can say I'm satisfied. I'm not going to walk around with regret in whatever form I take once I transform out of this vehicle. And that's, that's to me, that's the thing. Like we don't, we take our time for granted in my opinion. And as you get older time, it seems to fly by faster. And there's, there's scientific reasons to all of that. And, um, you know, as far as the perception of time and why children perceive time a lot slower than older people and so on and so forth. And it's it's an interesting thing, but, um, yeah, but I would I, just say, <laughs> say it again. 
I say, but we can't do it tonight. Yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. What, what, did, what, what, did you have any of the other ones you wanted to talk about? Uh, yeah, man. Like, I'm. Uh, if if the callers and listeners are, are down, we we gonna make it through all of them. That's what I'm. Yep. Okay. Because I was I was on the same page as you. Okay. So, um, this this next oh. one. Uh, no, nah, go ahead. If you had something particular, no, you go ahead. To, go ahead. Because I was just going down the list. Uh, I, okay, been, we'll go down the list. What's next? Plenty, plenty notes. Uh, all of them not going to be shared, but uh, the fired <laughs> AU reveals the people behind uh, African presidents' assassinations. Now, this is something mm-hmm. that we have going on right now with the infighting and the in the uh, with the ADOS. And, and what have you. And it's the same exact playbook that they had with the civil rights and every other movement that we done had, you know, uh, pitting people against each other. And if that don't work, just kill them off, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it was interesting because I had never heard of that until you uh, passed that video along the pack for the continuing, uh, for, for the, the continuation of, of colonization. Yes, that that is crazy. Uh, I mean, it's but not- that's the thing. When you're in control, you can say it how you want, and you don't have to care about the verbiage because these people are pretty much um, your subservience anyway. Yeah, what they have, yeah, you don't have respect for people who are beneath you, so you can literally put it in plain data. The tax for the continuation of colonization. Take that, niggas. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's pretty much what it is. It's a slap in the face, but white people have done that to every group. They slap you in the face with that racism, and it's it's like it's 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 like we haven't effectively come up with a way to thwart it because they never left. It's right. like somebody coming to your house with guns and take over your family's house. They put all of y'all in the basement, and then what they do is they let y'all. They start at some point. They say, you know, what? we're gonna let you come upstairs and use the kitchen and stuff like that. You know, we know you got a bathroom downstairs, so we're not worried about that. But if you use the kitchen, you know, you might be able to get an hour or two in the living room. And then after that, you go back downstairs. And then they tell you that you're free. And that's the thing. Like, we're all in that position. That's why I laugh when I see any black person from anywhere in the world judging another group of black people where they're suffering at. Because we are all under the same thing, just in different forms and different contexts, depending on the land that we're in. But outside of that, like, they never left. They just told us that, and we fell for the matrix. It's like we're under a spell. Like, and they just told us over and over, you are free, you are free. And we fell for it. And we're like, we're free. Yeah, we're, we're, we're free. But then when you look at the actual, it's like the Truman Show. It's, it's like the Truman Show. You know, you, you, you sit in there, and your life is literally being watched all the time. And... To me, we've all been conditioned so much that we make decisions that are pre-programmed for us, but we have been fooled into thinking that these are original thoughts and ideas that we came up with ourselves. And then when you follow the logical conclusions of those things, they're they're self-destructive or potentially destructive. Go ahead. That that goes back to the the, uh, Hegelian dialectic. Uh, Absolutely. they, They try they tried to implement the same thing that they have over in Europe as far as like the, uh, the cameras putting the cameras up and, you know, mm-hmm. black and white people are like, nah, we ain't, that's in invading our privacy. You know, they, they shut it. They shut that down. Like they, they was not trying to have that, uh, and rightfully yeah. so. 
and then they made Facebook. <laughs> and, and people stream and everything. So the camera is even closer now. I'm, I and mean, we're doing it, the picture taking ourselves. Exactly. So it's 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 interesting, man. But the next thing that I uh that I paid more attention to uh was that that she said there's no more coup d'etats. They they don't even waste their time doing that. They just create instability. And that's and that's the uh that's the order of the day. Uh create instability. Yep. You know, whoever we putting that on, they gon they gonna conform to whatever we need them to do. Because whether it's uh in Europe, you know, uh right now the instability that they doing as far as Russia is is the power. The uh the oil, I believe, if mm-hmm. I'm saying that. Yeah. Yeah, the natural gas, excuse me. The natural gas. And they're trying to yeah, cut America to be able to do that. You know, they cut America off and then they could supply the gas. And, you know, right now they that's that's what the fight is over uh Northwest Africa is over mm-hmm. that over that pipeline. So they, these are the type of things that they uh when we're talking about instability. Over here, man, we have so many things that we're dependent on. And and some of them are not even necessities. That's the crazy part. Uh for instance, the, the Popeye's chicken craze that we uh that they just had. Well And they're bringing it back. Man, and it's people going nuts over the fact that they finna have the chicken again. Like I think opium seasoning. I could be incorrect, but I really do. I really, really do. Hey man, a good a good hustler always put a tester out there first. Remember that article I read? They talked to a, a, a guy who made soup, and he said when he put the opium seasoning, those customers were return customers. That's just like the, 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 the drug dealer on the corner. You know that heroin is a guaranteed return customer. So you sell what's going to make a guaranteed return customer. It's the same same logic, same logic. And, and they said, I remember the sentence before, they said they don't know if it has addictive properties. Then they actually talked to a chef who uses it because he said it creates return customers. I'm like, you got your answer right there. And that's why I said you got to read those articles real carefully because they'll say one thing and then they'll completely disprove it with something else. And this was a man's personal experience. So you cannot discount that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. crazy, but yeah, it, it's it's yeah. Uh, it's something else. On this, if you don't have nothing more to add, I'm going to just continue on. I'm going to just... Yeah, go ahead. I'm gonna skip over the ten laws of power because we done we done went over these on a on a number of occasions. Yeah, actually got to get back to playing those uh, within the program. But I but I just go over I go over the titles of those uh, chapters real quick. Ten laws of power. Uh, say less than needed. Uh, court attention at all costs. Avoid unhappy people. Uh, keep people lucky people. Yes, and unlucky people. Keep people dependent upon you. <laughs> when asking for help, appeal to their self-interest. Uh, pose as a friend, but act as a spy. Uh, I didn't get to write this one all the way down. Use absence. Hold to on. increase respect and honor. Okay, you already got that, because my book is not in front of me. Uh, don't Don't offend the wrong person. Play a fool to catch a fool and recreate yourself. Uh, just as a side note, 
all of these things, uh, uh, all of, all of these subjects that we're touching on tonight and every night. I mean, every Tuesday that we come on, you can go in the archives of Black Talk Radio Network and you can check out uh, a lot of our stuff. We still have older stuff that we haven't uploaded. Uh, just time gets away from me, but eventually I take care of that. But for those that are there, you go check all of those out. And all of these things, are, are, all of these are tactics this week, last week, and every week prior to that. All of these are tactics we need to be uh, implementing kinda, uh, and pushing it and making it our culture. Because I know a lot of people disagree with me, but I always say that we don't have an, a culture anymore. We don't have one. Hip hop is not our culture. So for those that say hip hop is our culture, it is not. You have to know what the definition of culture is first. And hip hop is nothing that we want to pass on to to our lineage. But these, all of these points are things that we need to be passing on to our children and talking to our children about so that they can be aware when people are trying to uh, trying to use these acts on them. Uh, the next, the next and final, I think this is the final one. No, uh, there's a couple more. How to make people do anything? I thought that was a very, very interesting uh, article. I mean, a uh, clip. Uh, number yeah. one, I got was things to say to get people to do anything. I'm not sure if this for you, but I've said that I've I've said that many of times and I I guess I subconsciously knew what I was doing, but I until he stated it out loud, I never realized the uh the effect that it was having which is probably the reason why I continued to do it uh, in the past. Just, just talking on the street. That's, that's something all of these actually were things that I, I could recall using on more than a, one occasion. Uh, the open-mindedness. Um, what do you know about? How would you feel if, and just imagine like all of these things, they work. And some of you probably uh, use these as well, not even knowing that you're kind of pre-programming somebody's uh, response. So I thought that was wonderful just just to be to know consciously and, and not just unconsciously. And the last thing he said was probably the most important thing, because we talk about the use of words all the time. Uh, words are free. It's how you use them that will cost you. I thought that was probably the most brilliant statement out of all of the different clips that we had tonight because it's so true on so many different levels. Uh, what you got for that, Ross? Um, yeah, um, words are important. And I think when you study books that deal with human psychology and how to um, – to better understand the human condition, those things kind of help you get, or give you insight into these sorts of things where you, you understand it rather than to be using it and not be consciously aware that you're using it. Because a lot of times other people use those things against you and you don't realize it. 
you just, you know, you do what's pre-programmed in the subconscious mind to do. Um, so I think it's always good to be aware because you can either protect yourself from it when you encounter it, or you can utilize it yourself. And especially in a, in a system of white supremacy, it might help make certain situations easier for you. So to know these things to me is something that would be helpful in that regard. But there was another statement that they made that I think should be something we should ponder on because it was quite profound when he said it. And it is true. They said people are more motivated to move away from pain than to move towards pleasure. So remember that when it comes to raising your children, they're more motivated to move away from pain than they are to move towards pleasure. So if you're a person, let's say, who you might have a child who really doesn't need physical discipline in order to get them to do what you want, but you're a parent who physically disciplines them, they're going to associate interactions with with you with unpredictability and pain. And eventually there's going to be a rift between you and that child, especially if they're the type of child that you don't need to take that approach to. So you have to know your child. Some children might need a knock upside the head every now and then. That's just the personality trait of the child. They're really one who likes to push the envelope and they're very brave and they're very, um, they might be very um, inquisitive and they might violate because they're inquisitive and you're trying to get them to understand that, you know, you have to be able to curb those things because like they say, curiosity can kill you. You know what I mean? So you have to, you have to measure each child. And if you have a child that doesn't need physical discipline in order for you to get the proper response, but yet you use that against them, they're going to resent you because they're going to be Can I, more I in on that real quick. Absolutely. You also have to know yourself. That's, that's something yep. that I don't think of us pay attention to. We have to know ourselves and how we handle these children because we tend, well, I ain't going to say we tend, but a lot of people tend to blame the mistakes that the child makes on the child when the child is just repeating what he sees from his parents. Mm-hmm. That's true because, you know, children start off doing what's known as indiscriminate imitation. That means that they just pretty much imitate whatever they see, whether it's good or bad or indifferent, they just imitate it. And then once they get past that, which is like usually from year zero to around like age seven, they, they're more, you're more able to reason with them and get them to understand certain things that they should and shouldn't do. And you start with etiquette and things like that. And they start to be able to process those those um for them that's a a higher way of thinking and looking at the world but they're mature enough mentally for you you to start instilling those things in them so um you know it to me that statement should really dictate the what you set as the tone for the quality of the relationship with people that you love and if you do that i think if you look at that or keep that statement in mind it'll help you make better decisions with people that you care about that's what that's the context in which i would say um I would utilize that statement because I thought it was quite profound because it's so absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And um, (laughs) I think it's something that we should just ponder on period as a people and, um, you know, people who have a lot of things to work through um, to get to where we need to move to. Um, There was one of the videos where they talked about the, um, the five, types of children from toxic households. I missed the first one, but I have the ones two uh, two through five. So one is the scapegoat or the troublemaker. The other one one is the the lost child in the dream or the dreamer. Um, 
they said that they're they tend to be the invisible in their families and they tend to daydream a lot. They read tend to like to read and keep to themselves and they tend to have low self esteem. You have the mascot or class clown. Um and pretty much they're saying that they need they those people tend to feel powerless, so they tend to make jokes to kind of deflect from the things that make them feel powerless. Um, and then the last one was the the enabler or the caretaker. And they said in some context it deals with people who are addicted and things like that, and the people who care for the person who's 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 in addiction in a state of addiction and things of that nature. I thought it was quite interesting. I missed the first one. I wasn't able to write it down fast enough. Was a hero slash responsible child. Yeah. Yep. I was a little bit of a few of those. Like yeah. I was a little bit of, of a few, and there wasn't one I could say definitively was me, but I was a couple of those at different times in my life. So, um, yeah, I could quite readily identify with a lot of those things as far as just um, some of the things. And not all of the things that came with them were me either. There were certain things that stood out like, yep, I've been in that situation in that state before. And then other parts of the same thing be like, that doesn't apply. So it's like a mixture of them, I would say. And usually most people tend to be, <clears throat> excuse me, tend to be more than one, depending on the types of experiences they had as children and the effect that it had on them. Um I'm I'm right around the same as you. I was a I was a mixture of those and and maybe still is just not a child anymore. I'm a, so and that that well, comes from I think uh just growing up in the projects and having so many different influences some that I knew were good, some that I knew were bad, and some that I was kind of indifferent, didn't really know uh and just taking in a little bit of all of that and just venturing off. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like with you as far as uh, having a mixture of all five of those. Yeah. It's, and I would say, Oh, go ahead. What you want to say? No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, um, I remember one thing I learned, it was from this um, renowned Israeli um, psychotherapist who used to work at a com- company that I worked at. And she said, for every situation that people deal with as an adult, there's an equal opposite situation that dates back to their childhood that they draw from to decide on how they feel, think, and act in that a situation that's happening to them as an adult. And I remember she did an exercise in which I was able to see that correlation in certain aspects of my own life. And I was like, wow, that's very interesting, but it makes perfect sense because really when you think about it life is nothing but one long moment that we actually demarcate in order to indicate our life span for recording and documentation purposes to prove that you existed when you pass away that's what you have the tombstone and all of that for us to say this person once existed they existed from this time to this time and then they put you in a category based on on that so um It's uh, I lost my train of thought. I don't know. Maybe I wasn't meant to say it. Unless you <laughs> want to tell me where I left off, I just lost my train of thought just that fast. That doesn't happen often, but it happened to me now. Um, it, it was so far in the middle. I'm not really sure where he was going with it myself. I'm trying to remember what the heck I was talking about. It just literally just dropped for me right then and there. I think I started thinking of something else, and then I just lost it. I don't know. Yeah, I'm doing something myself, and I 
Well, let's just just continue. Um, well, I can't remember what I was talking about because <laughs> I should pick up on something else, though. Yeah, um, on to the manipulation, because uh, I thought that was very interesting as well. Because I started out, I started out, uh, well, excuse me, we started out with the uh, willful blindness, and I think that's, uh, uh, I think that has a big part to play with the manipulation or people who manipulate. Uh, yeah, because they kind of go hand in hand. Certain in the streets, I used to manipulate people, and I and I was willfully blind to a lot of things. Uh, and manipulation was one of the ways that I handled that. So when I see people doing it now, you know, it's it's automatic for me to uh, recognize it. You know, it's I guess it's that uh, game recognized game is what they call it nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the first relation, like I said, I think it happens. I think it happens all the time in different relationships. It's just the context of the manipulation, whether it's something that's innocuous or whether it's something that's not. And you feel like, hey, this person is really trying to use me in a negative way. So I need to, you know, deal with them in a certain capacity in order to make sure that they don't, you know, use me in a way that I'm not comfortable with, you know, because. A lot of times when you have relationships with people, there's always going to be some level of, of, of manipulation. It's just, like I said, just the, the context of the manipulation. And I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, but it's something that happens in relationships. So it doesn't mean like every time you're around a person, they're going to try to manipulate you unless they're trying to get you to do something that you don't so. want to do. I think so. I think, I think it's always a manipulation. What, what, what you have to realize is that it's the manipulation for your benefit or is it for the other person's benefit? Because there's always going to be some uh, some level, uh, like speaking of uh, the program that we we do every week is a manipulation. Uh, we we are trying to get people to see things uh, not only from how they look at things, but also to look at things from a different standpoint because. We may we may believe that not saying that what we are saying is right, but just to have that other side of this picture to make one whole picture is very important to me. Mm-hmm. So it's always a manipulation. The only thing that you have to realize is that if the person that you're speaking with or the person that you're listening to is the manipulation that they have, is it dangerous to you or is it helpful? Uh, and it's always going to, when you say relationships, I don't want people to get it confused with uh, like, like romantic relationships because mm-hmm. it could be a friendship. It could be kinship. It could be uh, a, a partnership like for work is somebody has the the greater influence. That, even with your pet. Yeah. Even with your pet, you know, somebody Absolutely. has greater influence. So you have to, uh, you as an individual have to realize, uh, is that influence that you're receiving, is it good for you or is it bad for you? I I think that's the biggest thing you have to, and that goes back to being aware, being aware if you are the person that's the influencer or are you the influencee? I agree. Yep. This is just thinking. Just thinking in 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 situations and just being uh, in a state.
state of awareness and in the moment, right, not being distracted, then you kind of can process things in a way that's um, most conducive to you being able to better understand what you're dealing with. If you're distracted, then someone can always capitalize off that distraction. And um, that that's also when manipulation happens. I remember sometimes I would purposely wait till my mother was exhausted and tired and ask her to do something because usually she'd be so out of it, she'll just say yes to anything. So I would ask her sometimes things that I would consider outrageous and she would tell me yes. And then I would literally tell her, remember you said I could? And then she'll be like, yeah. And then sometimes she'd actually tell me, don't, you know, don't ask me stuff when I'm in that state, you know, <laughs> because she knew that I would manipulate that. So, I mean, there's a lot of different different examples. Like I said, you could, it could be little stuff. It could be big things. It's just all depends. And you have to know yourself and understand what you will and will not do or, you know, whatever the case may be. And then that's how you're able to make a decision as to what, how you're going to deal with whatever request it is or the situation at hand. And from there, you, you know, you'll be able to make a more informed decision. So I think the less you know yourself, um, usually the other person knows you better than you know yourself. If you don't know yourself, that's why they're trying to manipulate you. You know, so either you know yourself better than the other person or they know you better than you know yourself and they're able to use that to their advantage. Right. You know, uh, yeah. There was actually a, a, a clip I put up earlier today about what they call kidnapper ants and they kidnap the, the larvae of the other ants and like like brainwash them into like being slaves for them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it even happens in the animal kingdom where these types of things happen and that's kind of like the... um the story that I talked about before the lion and the wild boar is the same thing. You know, you have one species kidnapping another one and forcing the one they kidnap into believing through mental conditioning into believing that they're one of the people who, one of the entities that kidnapped them, even though it's a totally different species, you know? So yeah, it happens even in the animal kingdom. So you gotta, Uh, and that's why we study nature. Go ahead. I have a great story, man, that my that my mother used to tell me about that. Like when I would try to do that, <laughs> uh-huh. trying to manipulate her to do stuff, she was like, Come on, like that don't work. She was like we used to do that to my like we used to do that to my dad all the time. Cause see my my, my grandfather growing up here in Chattanooga, he was uh he had to deal with like quite a bit of racism. I don't know if y'all caught the uh if any of you have ever seen the Breakfast Club interview with uh, Samuel Jackson talking about his grandfather when he was growing up in Chattanooga, but like those those young suspected racists used to talk real crazy to his grandfather, and he was like forty years their senior, and you know uh, Samuel was like I was looking at them and I couldn't understand it. He he really couldn't understand it. So my grandfather would would deal with that because he had nineteen children. So he would just suck it up and deal with it. And on the weekends, he got drunk. And my my mother used to tell me every time, like uh, Friday afternoon, he would start drinking on his way home. Not when he got home, he would start drinking on his way home. And he would fall asleep, you know, wake up, play cards with his partners or what have you, go back to drinking. And like the next time he would fall asleep, that's when everybody now it's 19 of them now everybody would go and ask for money after he fell after he fell asleep the second time because he was so impaired that he was like yeah 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 just going to go get it just going to get it 
So they, they him, him on that end. Uh, they they knew what he did. They knew what his routine was, and they would take advantage of it. You know, he was he was smart enough to put his stuff up and only have a certain amount of money to not give his check away, you know, after, well, not his check, but his spending money. Cause you know, <laughs> Irma Roof was not having that. <laughs> Grandma Barbara Roof rest both of their souls, man. They, she was not having that, but what he had left over children took a good chunk of that because he would be drunk. And, and that would be the, the that would be the time that they would always come and ask him. Hey, can we have this? Can I go here? Can I do that? He just, yeah, yeah, go ahead and wave them off. And it's so, yeah, it it happens everywhere. And I think it happens the most, like you said, in relationships, whenever you are in close proximity to somebody, as bad as this may sound, it's very true. They, the people that are closest to you will be the ones that will misuse you the most. So, uh, with that said, uh, unless anybody has anything that they would like to ask, uh, they would like to add any questions. Uh, yeah, I, I would. Yeah, well, go ahead, brother Scatter. Sure, there was one yeah. more too. Yeah, so I really ahead. enjoyed. I really enjoyed the program tonight. Thank you. Uh, thank, oh, you. thank you. We appreciate your input too. Go ahead, though. Oh no, I'm I'm uh. I think I think that's I think that's good. What you say you wanted to talk about one last thing? You talking about how there was one more? That was that was the um the the clip with um Lord Jamal and Vlad. Yeah, we definitely can't forget the Vlad interview. My, (laughs) I didn't even I didn't even have to write no notes for that. So I kind (laughs) of yeah, I didn't even have to write no notes for that. That was an. It was a lot of racism in that in that uh what <laughs> it goes without saying. That, but in that particular clip, man, he told so much truth. I think it I think it hurts uh, a few people who may have uh checked it out because we we as a people have have deemed this uh reparation thing as if as if it's a power move for us. Uh and when I say us, I mean just uh well, I guess I shouldn't say us, but most most black Americans, uh what I mean, they got it's a few different names that they have now. Uh foundational Americans, uh mm-hmm. descendants. Foundational of, black Americans, yeah. It, I mean it's it's so many, but but you know, there there's been a lot of force about who could say what about the reparations and i think when vlad said that as as racist as i believe he is that was so much truth the people who pay the taxes are gonna be the ones that are gonna uh eventually make the decision and when you keep alienating people especially when you asking for something mind you we have no standing army uh we have no standing army Matter of fact, let's not even talk about a standing army. But yeah, yeah, talk about it. Talk about it. And well, well, before, before we can even get to that, Scotty, we have to be honest with ourselves, and we're fighting each other about. But, but, about Jerry, how to go about it. but Jenna, 
this dude told me when what did I I was posting, you know, we, we got HR the art HR forty bill right. So in Cobra right. wrote that. A group of black people wrote that. And John Conyers rest in power, um, icon, black icon, civil rights movement and on. He was on Selma Bridge. Y'all know he just passed away at ninety years yeah. old. And he introduced that bill for about twenty years every year. Never giving up, never stopping. Now that bill has over 100 sponsors, the most it's ever had, and it's out of committee, and it's actually been introduced in Congress. It took 20 years to get to that point. Let's hope it don't take another 20 years to get this commission, because, again, going to what Vlad said, and and, I, and I'm not making excuses for Obama, but Obama was right when he said, I don't support reparations because there's no political support. Because, like y'all just said, the taxpayers are the ones that's going to be funded. You got to get them on board to push their representatives to vote for it because Congress right. controls the purse strings, and then they got to fund it, and the president got to sign it in the law before a check gets sent out. So they're well, right. Let me, let me, right let me stop you right there, uh, Scotty. Before you continue, what they didn't say in this video is that 85% of the Americans, excuse me, I think it may be, it may be 65. I don't, I don't, don't quote me on he that said, number. He said 80% it. of Americans are against reparations at this time. Against, that are non-black. Like, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I can't remember what the actual number, but you're saying 80, right, Rob? Yeah, he said 80. That's what he said based on, 80, you know, 80%. the numbers he had and whatnot. And, and, and that's where we get because the, I think it's fifteen percent, which is the black the black vote, and 13, we are not even thirteen percent because you know that thirteen percent includes children, so it's not right. even thirteen percent. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, see, well, well, yeah. I'm I'm not I'm not quite uh, I'm not Pacific on the numbers right now. I don't have them in front of me. I should have I should have see that that go my time. I was procrastinating. Uh, but uh the thing about that is is that that let's say that let's let's use the number 13 right for okay. my birthday anyway shout out to me uh that 13% right that 13% is fighting amongst each other to right. decide how how we even going to present this so that's now since we got that out the way that we're still fighting each other about what to call ourselves, who should get what, uh, what should, what's the list? Like, it's a lot of things that we're fighting about. So we ain't even got to that point. But on top of all of that, like I stated, we don't have no standing army. And that's what so, just got me on, on Twitter. So I had shared uh, in Cobra's last show. They're on every Monday night. And then, you know, I was listening to uh, uh, while I was playing a video from an Encobra youth conference that uh, Pete, not Pete Buttigieg, what's the boy, what's the presidential candidate down there in Texas, Beto O'Rourke. He called okay. in. This was a video conference. And, and this was organized by Encobra. And, and, and they brought him on and young people asking him questions about, are you going to support reparations? Do you support reparations? So this elder was on, also on the call, and she said she didn't name ADOS by name, but this is what she said. She said it's a doggone shame that we put in all this work and we get some traction, 
instead of them uniting with us, because NCOBRA stands for National Coalition of, of uh, what is it, National Coalition for, Rep- I'm going to just paraphrase, National Coalition for Reparations. This is black organizations. This isn't, this is a coalition of organizations. It's not just one. And, and right. she said they could have came on board with us and worked with us since we didn't lay the groundwork. We really got a bill in there, but they're tearing it down. She didn't name them by name, but we all knew who they were talking about. So anyway, I was sharing one of their archives on Twitter. And this black dude retweet my stuff, retweeted. But he gonna put in his comments, that's all black people can do is talk about it. And and the only way we gonna get reparations is if we establish our own nation. I'm like, what? That don't even make sense. How you gonna establish your own nation? I asked him, you got an army? Do we got an army? We got to stay in the army? What, where we gonna establish Wakanda at? We just gonna take some stakes? How we gonna do that? Cause you saying we gotta do that first. We gotta establish Wakanda first before we can get reparations from these people. That ain't made sense to me. Was was here? Here's the thing, Scotty. Is that I think I think a lot of us hear different things, but we don't put them into the time and the context that they need to go in. Uh, because we don't have a standing army. Yeah, that's right. We we that's why we asking right now at this point we we are asking and like oh like man rise talked about this like obama's uh catchphrase hope <laughs> we that's all we doing right now we hoping that they do something like we could be mad all we want but at the end of the day we have no power to force anybody to do anything we have no nation behind us to force the uh united states of america to do anything and on on top of all of that, we got to go back to the very first thing I said about this is that we still have so much infighting going on that we can't even pass on and and get these ideas to even build a list because every time somebody says something that somebody doesn't like instead of uh instead of communicating and trying to figure out how we could make this work for everybody. We we start calling each other names. We start throwing around threats. I can't even call them empty threats no more because, you know, sometimes people, uh, Roz was just talking about a battle rap. A brother got, got murdered over some battle rap. Hey, Jim, so, one correction. We got a bunch of nations behind us demanding the United States uh, pay reparations, but they don't got no standing army too either. I'm talking about the United Nations in 2018 came over here. A lot of people don't know this because they ain't going to put it on TV. They ain't going to put it on mainstream media. But the UN, the work at, for the uh, Human Rights Committee came mm-hmm. out with a report after they came over here and did research Then nobody even know they was here except for, you know, people that do the work. They came out with a report, said the United States owes African Americans reparations for slavery past, for slavery present, what they call it mass incarceration, for police violence, and for everything in the, in the political and financial disenfranchisement of Jim Crow. Do you no, I remember that? 
The United Nations said this in a report, an official body representing an international body of nations. But like I saw somebody else make a joke saying that, well, you can say whatever you want to say, United Nations, where your army at? Like you're going to come up in the United States and force us to pay it. I was, so, I was about to say this. Yeah, yeah but the U.S. is the We do have nations behind us, and that's why I don't like ADOS people trying to drive wedges between us and Africans on the continent or in the diaspora because some of them were part of that UN committee that, that voted on this resolution that said the United States. This is international law. So by international law, it's in law that they owe us reparations. But see, just we, we just don't have a means of affecting it because they're see, gangsters. See what you're saying, Scotty? But because of that, I say that we don't have any behind us because they can't make them do anything without that standing army. There's no fear of anything happening. So, I mean, but I do understand what you're saying. And and I remember that because, uh, Roz, then we we talked about that article when they put that out. Yeah, last year. we did. We yeah, we did. That. I remember that. But like you stated, because as soon as we talked about that, we had a, we had a, uh, we done a show uh, a few weeks after that about nations who don't have a standing army. We we did that as well because yes, of that. Yeah, because of that uh, article that you're talking about, we we talked about that. But because they don't have a standing army, that means there's nobody to put any pressure. Because people could tell United States, there's a lot of people that tell United States they wrong about a lot of stuff. <laughs> but if you if you don't have the ability to uh to strike fear into america then you basically just just talking you're speaking to a deaf person because when america uh tell people that they gonna do some stuff people believe they know what's happening that standing army in action yep so there's you know and that's why i say that that we don't have anybody because if we don't have any help then we just don't have any help. Does that make sense to you, Scotty? Yeah, it makes sense. But also, we need to consider Tando Radio Show and the stuff we used to talk about on there. In the yeah, British yeah. Ages, in China, in Russia, in South Africa, in India, setting up a separate financial system. See, that's how the United States is able to sanction people. Ain't nobody exactly. sanctioning United States because they in control of the global financial markets and that dollar is is by the barrel of the gun is made to be the world trade dollar. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. In the future, it may be I'm just saying like Tando, like Dave said, we headed we might be headed towards the untied states of America anyway, because the Chinese in them is playing the long game. See, we blame the United States playing the short game. I was just talking to a brother from the U.S. Virgin Island who called me today who listened to Black Talk Radio, and we were talking about, you know, who's winning this trade war between the U.S. and China. China's winning because they playing the long game. They hold all the U.S. debt. You know what I'm saying? And we're, look, he didn't gave all them tax cuts to the, yeah. the wealthy country and we're going this as a nation going broke man going it, ain't, it ain't just that though uh scotty because remember they still they hold our uh they hold our meat and poultry as well as far as processing 
A lot of that people say do. But we talked about that today. Why did Trump have to get that $6 billion? They talk about they hate Bernie Sanders and this is socialism. Trump just gave them Midwest farmers $6 billion because they no longer had access to the Chinese markets and lost all that money. Yeah, but yet they still... Because I never, I never understood that we we pay them to we pay them so that we could ship our poultry and our uh, and our meat over there so that they could process it, and then we pay them again to ship it back. So then we could, so then they. Let me quit saying we. I, I feel like Dave when I said that. <laughs> let me quit saying we. So then they could ship it back. And then we distribute it over here. Like, and we know they have a history of mistreating that stuff as well. The history of that, when my little brother, who was wrongfully convicted of a breaking and entering with no evidence and all white jury and judge, and they sent him to prison here in North Carolina, guess where they had him working? On a poultry farm. Mm. Okay. Prisoners also process that meat, fish, and poultry. And then the illegal immigrants we talked about i was talking to spence mm-hmm. today about it. and i was like you know people talking about they taking our jobs do you want to go up in this factory they had here in north carolina chain the doors up nothing but immigrants illegal immigrants in there uh forced to work without bathroom breaks them people talking about we had to go to bathroom on the line while we plugging chicken and what have you and, and so them people don't have any kind of legal protections who they gonna complain to and so they bring right. them in to do that processing too. Yes, yes, yes. It's wild. You know, you, you know what it is too, because the one thing that stood out, right? Because I just want to correct what Vlad said about Pearl Harbor. The U.S. sanctioned the Japanese and was stopping them from getting supplies and oil and all kinds of stuff, which is what triggered Pearl Harbor. And then after Pearl Harbor, they bombed them. So the U.S. was behind what took place as far as them making that decision like, yo, we tired of y'all blocking these ships. We need what we need. And that's what facilitated the attack that ended up turning into what we call Pearl Harbor. And then we know the rest. But one thing he said that, that, um, that made sense was that some of the ADOS people, because I want to stress that it's not all of them, but to me it's a decent number of them from what I'm seeing. They're actually attacking people who are for reparations, and the conversation is not about reparations anymore. It's about immigration or it's about something else when the whole premise is supposed to be around reparations. So the the focus of the conversation is deflected all the time, and then when the backlash comes from the people that it's being deflected on, then it turns into you don't have a say-so in what, what this conversation is. And I think that that's where Vlad made the most valid point. It's everybody's going to have to come to a consensus. When the Japanese got their got their reparations, everybody came to a consensus on what that was going to be. It wasn't just the Japanese. The Japanese did, I'm sure, have you know um, input in regards to what they wanted out of it, but it had to be agreed upon. So the same people that you that you're um, alienating yourself from are people that you're going to have to double back around and work with at some point. So the idea is not necessarily to, you know, I'm not saying to kiss anyone's behind, but it's really about being diplomatic so that it's easier to get the things done that you need done. And that's, that's pretty much what I took most from it is that, um, you know, just, just, uh, 
understand that there's going to be a wide, there has to be a wider national conversation about it for it to actually um, take effect. Go ahead. Let's not even use the Japanese, but that is a great point. Okay. And, but they fought long and hard for that too. That didn't just happen overnight. These Native American tribes that have gotten something that they fought uh, over a hundred years to get that, those reparations. And then like one Native American said, you're not really giving me reparations when you just give me back land you stole, you know, so you just exactly. return them. Oh, you, you need to pay not even interest. all of it. Yeah. And then and, not yeah, even you, all you get a, res- oh, yeah, a reservation right. land. Me and you did that show. Your appearance is from uh, where, what island? Trinidad and Tobago. But they became U.S. citizens, right? Yes, they did. Yeah. They were paying taxes, right? Absolutely. And they have a, a representative in Congress, right? Yes, they do. So they have a say then, don't they? Absolutely. And they're for reparations, too. That's the thing that's crazy is that like, why are you arguing with people that are on your side it's, about that it's, issue? It's, and it's right. because it's being, it's being, but it's because the conversation is not focused on reparations. And that goes all the way back to looking at the talking points of Antonio Moore and um, Yvette Carmel, who are tied in with white supremacist think tanks that are working to get Trump elected. And like he said, Vlad said accurately, Trump already said, I don't think reparations is going to happen. But yet, Yvette Carmel is saying by her affiliations that, and her talking points, because she's getting her talking points from those people in that white supremacist group, pretty much we're working to get Trump back into office. And they're talking about downvoting and all this other stuff. And it's really the people that are following them don't understand that they're being put in a political quandary. Because you have to understand that no other group, the Democrats is not going to support a group that is, is pretty much technically classified as a hate group because of its affiliation and because of what its leaders are saying. So the, so we, the, the people who have issues with ADOS are not averted to the concept of ADOS and what it means. What they're averted to is the affiliations that makes it pretty much a white supremacist extension that the people who are following it, who haven't done their due diligence, isn't paying attention to. So you have this black woman and this black man representing you speaking white supremacist talking points, but yet you're asking for support from other groups like the Democrats and other groups for them to, to, you know, to come correct, but they can't associate themselves with a group that has white supremacist leanings Look, because then it makes them look bad. It's going to rub off. And they're like, I don't want no parts of that. Yo, I said that's early on. Yo, I said this early on in the show. We, a lot of times, not sometimes we give too much credit. We mm-hmm. think people know stuff based off of uh, what some of us as individuals have become aware of. And the fact is, is that a lot of people just don't know that. They just don't know. And I, I think what we're going to have to do is that we just have to take the time to explain that. And if they don't want to listen, you know, you just got to pass them up and, and go to the next one. Because as simple as that is, and it's an easy thing to find, it's a lot of yeah, people that's going about it. A lot of people going to believe that it's a smearing campaign, even though they know the history of some of these people. Just because it feels good, we finally get a chance to 
talk about how bad these suspects done treated us and and what they gonna give us. We talk about what they gonna do simultaneously asking and hoping that they do it. And I wanted to say, always remember that hope is for powerless people. Only people who have no capacity to do anything about their mistreatment hope. They put faith in the other people who are abusing them that somehow they're going to get humanity after they've never had humanity in 500 years as a collective group. You're going to just hope that they give you something. And that's because you don't have any power to affect forcing them to do what's correct and what's just. And it's not a disrespectful thing I'm saying. It's a factual thing. I'm in the same predicament. So I'm not talking like I, I got a standing army and I could go change things for myself and, you know, my people. It's, none of us have that. So I'm just making, making that realistic uh, understanding known. And the idea is that the more people you can get to rally behind the actual focus of reparations, that, is, should, be, that should be all that matters. That should be all that matters. And, you know, Vlad is a racist. That clip was so racist. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Yeah, but I there had, was a, had you add to that yeah. again. <laughs> Can't reiterate that enough. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was actually terribly, br- terrible and brilliant at the same time because he said a lot of truth. But within that truth, it was just so much racist vitriol and, and undercurrent. It was just like, dude, like you just marring all of the good stuff you're saying with this nonsense and all of this American backing stupidity that's not rooted in historical fact. You're actually telling the narrative, the fake narrative about what happened in Hawaii, not the real deal, that the U.S. really pushed the Japanese to feel like they had to retaliate. They did so, and then they caught nuclear attacks on top of that. And yes, he is correct. The damage was done worse by the napalm, but that has nothing to do with obliterating two cities full of innocent people. And they got documentaries about the suffering of those people to this day that are mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing what happened to those people in those areas, in addition to the fact that they literally just burnt everything down with napalm. Napalm is horrifically destructive, and the stories about that are even crazier in some, some areas and some battles that they fought. So, you know, the the whole idea is this, like, we should just be rallying around the whole idea of reparations and making sure that it's pushed through. Because, again, we're in a position of asking. You have to remember what happened with Germany. They were forced to give reparations after losing the war. And they were assisted with their with rebuilding their infrastructure, but only after they did what they were told by the U.S. and, and its allies after they lost the war. Who's going to force the U.S. to do anything? There is no country. That's why they don't want any other group, especially in the Middle East, having nuclear weapons. Because then they can actually tell the U.S. and it'll be a standoff. Like, okay, well, we got nukes too, so what you going to do? You know, so the U.S. doesn't want that with, with non-white, any non-white country. So they're going to fight tooth and nail to make sure that these non-white countries do not get nuclear weapons. That's the whole purpose. And that's why I keep saying I don't think – a lot of black people understand politics. We make a lot of, we talk a, about a lot of things without really understanding how politics works and how it actually plays out in our everyday lives in ways that we don't, some of us just can't fathom. Go ahead. You were going to say something, Jim? Yes. Go ahead. Your mic's open. Hello? Greetings. Oh, hello? Greetings, greetings. What's going on, y'all? Oh, peace. How you doing? Yeah, I was waiting for you. Me too. <laughs> kept getting, kept getting, kept getting cut off and everything. 
Okay, the first thing I want to say about Vlad, he needs to be muted. That dirty Slavic Russian doesn't have a dog in the fight. Really, he doesn't even have, he, he has no business talking about reparations. On top of which, kind of easy coast, the next time he keeps on saying pull up, somebody from Detroit just might pull up. He needs to shut his mouth because he too doesn't have a dog in this fight. People that don't, that can't trace your lineage back like I can, need to shut the hell up. That's all I really have to say about that today, gentlemen. But uh, I'm with you. I, I love the show. The show has been great. Thank you. Thank you, Hayes. Uh, the, yeah, thank you. the thing with that, though, Hayes, is that, like we was talking about, the tax dollars are what's going to pay those reparations. And when we, at, at some point, well, we have to we have to think in a strategic manner. And that's why we was bringing it to the table today, because if we don't, we shut off the people that's going to pay those reparations. Because there's no way in the world that the United States is going to just go into their vaults and pay anything. They don't even want to pay it now. They sure not going to pay it out of their out of their pockets. It's going to come out the same reparations that me and you are going to get if we ever get any. Part of that gonna come out of our own pockets. That the the one thing we need to start saying is it has to be tax free. I want my forty acres tax free. I don't intend on paying any property taxes. I don't plan on paying any federal taxes. Adolf shouldn't have to pay any taxes. Even when I pay for a candy bar, I shouldn't have to pay for no doggone taxes. That's right. That, that has that has to be you know brought up. And, and and put on the the Congress and Senate floor to be decided upon. That's something that should be done. But there's a whole bunch of other things that need to be done as well. So yeah, the infight needs right. to stop though. The infight needs the biggest, to stop. That's the biggest issue is the infighting because that's that's you know it's creating a situation that's untenable because everybody has their own ideas and you can't formulate a cohesive plan with everybody having their own ideas and unwilling to capitulate to anybody else. And you know the arguing is just it's 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 insane, and, and it's funny. It's funny because I wanted to bring up something that kind of coincides with some of this discussion. Um, Jen and I talked about it earlier. It's a really really brief article, but I think it's quite profound. It's called "What Are Police Brutality Bonds?" As the, it says, as the cost of police misconduct rises. Cities and counties across the United States are going into debt to pay for it. Often this debt is in the form of bond borrowing. When cities or counties issue bonds to pay these costs, banks and other firms collect fees for the services they provide and collectors collect, I mean, investors collect interest. The use of bonds to pay for settlements and judgments greatly increases the burden of policing costs on taxpayers while producing a profit for banks and investors. Using bonds to pay for the settlements or judgments can nearly double the cost of the original settlement. All of this is paid for by taxpayers. These police mm -hmm. brutality bonds quite literally allow banks and wealthy investors to profit from police violence. This is a transfer of wealth from the communities, especially over police communities of color, to Wall Street and wealthy investors, and it needs to stop. 
our recommendations. We need to abolish this system of policing and build a justice system that prioritizes the needs and well-being of all people. While we collectively work toward that, here are our key recommendations. If cities must borrow to pay for settlements and judgments, banks and investors should not be allowed to profit from that. Police officers must be forced to take out individual liability insurance policies to cover the cost of settlements and judgments caused by their misconduct. Governmental bodies at the local, state, and federal levels must account for and provide full transparency about which officers are behaving in ways that lead to settlements and judgments, how they are or are not being held accountable, and who is paying for their misconduct, and how and who is profiting from these payments. So there it is. Again, what's happening even with reparations is going to come out of the pockets of the people. So you cannot limit the discussion solely to the descendants of formerly or enslaved uh, Africans in America because you have to have a cohesive conversation around what is to be done. And finally, the taxpayers will have a say. So if you're in a country where statistically, according to the numbers that Vlad got, 80% of the United States is against reparations, and then you're dealing with a, a, a group hashtag ADOS, that is running with white supremacist groups and speaking white supremacist talking points that is also further alienating ADOS itself from the discussion. So there's a lot of things that are going on simultaneously, That is, and, and they're also fighting for the re-election of Trump. Yvette Cornell has made that clear on multiple... Understand. But they made, she made it clear on multiple video streams that she literally is, is talking up Trump. And Vlad made it clear. And I remember Trump saying that. He was like, reparations is not going to happen. So understand, if he gets reelected, you can cough or just spit away 2020. Yeah, at least four and more years. At least four more years. And, that, and that's the crazy part. And then on top of that, you have some people at ADOS creating problems with people who are actually for reparations. So that's like cutting your nose to spite your face when, you, when the person's like, I'm for reparations, and then you're still going in on them. Instead of just hey. saying, well, okay, you got these ideas, I got these ideas. I may not agree with your ideas, but still we can coalesce around actually getting reparations done. And then once we get to the decision-making process, we could discard the crap that we don't want from you. And if you got stuff that's usable, we'll take it. And the same thing goes for my ideas and so on and so forth until we come up with an actual document that everyone can get on board with and make this happen. So there's, hey, there's, 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 Go ahead. Let me, I, I was actually, you know, because I don't identify as ADOS. I identify as black. I identify right. as African-American interchangeably. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, black signifies my identification under a system that's still practicing racism because they came up with the term black and white. Okay. African-American, I am American because I'm a U.S. citizen. But I have African roots, and that's a homage to my ethnicity, even though I don't know which tribe I would belong to, okay? Uh, but I don't, yeah. So I don't also don't call myself ADOS because I, I, I don't want to refer to people as slaves who, when that's a dehumanizing term. But, you know, that's nitpicking or whatever. So I don't, I don't you, you call it nitpicking, but it means a lot to some other people. I don't want to call somebody a slave that when they was alive didn't want to be called a slave. That's why they came out with the propaganda poster that said, I am a man. Y'all remember that right. poster? Y'all ever seen yeah, that yeah. poster? Yeah, absolutely. Me on the ground and saying, I'm a man. Okay? And, and so, um, but 
I have friends that do identify as that, and they know how I feel, and I, hey, but we still accept each other, okay? Um, we're not going to fall out. They listen to Black Talk Radio. He said something that I had been meaning to do a show. He made a post on Facebook. He, he was talking about supporting these universal programs. He didn't mention Bernie Sanders, but Bernie Sanders is the only one that's these universal programs. What's the universal program? Medicare for all. You're going to tell me black people don't need health care more than anybody else and we and don't need right. our medical debt canceled? What about college for all? That's tuition free going to state colleges and universities, public colleges and universities. You mean to tell, I couldn't afford to send my daughter to a, a HBCU. She was accepted to. Okay. Do we not need our student debt canceled? My sister in the next room over there is still paying off student debt after 10 years. Okay. I need man. So we need that paid off. Yeah. Okay. And I could go on and on. Do we not need our people in prison to get voting rights and to have a prisoner bill of rights and outlawing solitary confinement and then stopping them from doing prison gerrymandering where they get counted in the districts of the prison they're in, which is usually white, instead of the home last home address they had when they got put into modern slavery. That's in this platform. These are universal programs. There is a lot of political support to pass those. So he was saying, so me and him was talking, and I was like, you know what? Really, we need to jump on board and get these universal programs because there's political support, and we need to add our support to it to make sure it has the best chance to pass. Then once you get all of that, they ain't got no. It's nothing else to debate. What you gonna give me? You gonna give me as a black person free tuition at a public college? Hey, I already got that. You gonna pay all my school right. debt? I already got that. Just right. cut the check. Just it cut allows the you check. to ask for other things. Exactly. Yep. And it make a lot right. of sense. But that see, see what you just elucidated is why I say a lot of us don't understand politics and that. There's a lot of ways to make things happen and also get even more more than you might have originally intended based on how you go about it. It goes back to that video we talked about. Um, we're talking about getting somebody to do anything for you. Words are important. It's not just the combination of words you use, but how you use them. Right. It's really true. And, and, and I mean, like, just what you elucidated is a great, you know, just outline of something that can be added to and things of that nature. But that's the type of innovative thought, because if you already have that politician fighting for certain things that would automatically be beneficial to you as well as other people, then that leaves you free to ask for other things that you might not have asked for. Because like you said, you can always say, look, we already got free tuition. You know, we already got these things. So you can't offer that to us as a part of a reparations package because everybody's getting that. Now we need to specify what's going to benefit me and my people. Right, And then you can ask for more because all of those things are off the list because it's already universal. Let me so that add, leaves you free to, to ask a lot more. Go ahead, ask for a lot more. Go ahead. It's, a, uh, it's another thing as far as when we're talking about the people. Uh, and this was, like I said, Vlad racist. Man, I, but in this particular <laughs> case, he made a lot of sense because like we stated that all of those reparations are going to come out of taxpayers. When we're talking about the... Uh, the uh, Caribbean uh, blacks, remember, they are American as well. America is not the United States. It's North, South, uh, North, Central, and South America. And all of those people and the people around the world 
they all are looking to us for us here in the United States to make this happen, to make it easier for them to make things similar happen as well. And I just don't see the reason to alienate ourselves when throughout all of my childhood and prior to that, by, by way of information from the information that my uncles and aunts did give me, when they have done things that have benefited us here, I don't understand why today we tend to shun them for reasons that they can't even control themselves. Well, let, let me say something. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry, but I lost a lot of respect for Yvette when she went off on uh, Dr. Claude Anderson. Here this man is. He filed paperwork years before AVOS or even she got her first computer. And she disrespected him on a large scale that, I'm sorry, I just can't forget. And anyway, uh, why why is this movement being led by a bull dagger anyway? Maybe that's really none of my business, but I just found that out. And I'm, that's kind of salty in my mouth. Now, Tone, he's a lawyer, he's an educated man, but I'm sorry, I don't follow no bull daggers. This, this, this is a straight household, I'm sorry. It's... It's gonna be a lot of things that 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 kind of just pop out because it's a lot of people that again we talking about emotions, man. Uh, people have emotions. People have been feeling this way for a long time. It's a lot of people who never never knew about Encobra. I'm not saying that you didn't, Hayes. I'm just saying a lot of people my age and younger have no idea what Encobra, excuse me, yeah. what Cobra was or is, excuse me. So they really believe that uh, Tone and uh, Yvette came up with this. So they feel like, again, pay attention to my words, they feel like it's right. That's the first place they heard it from. That's who they figure they need to follow. But they don't have all of the information. And again, it's not hard to find it, but sometimes we put too much credit to uh, sometimes we give ourselves and the enemy too much credit. I think we just have to take time, pause and think about what people are telling us because they might just don't know, you know, and we can't take how nobody feel as a, uh, as a reason for us to go support something. Uh, Go ahead, Uh Ross. Yeah. Start wrapping it up in a little bit. It's almost been four hours. Yo. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I was going to say that th- the, the other thing is when you're following a group that has a designated leader, you have to watch the company that le- those leaders keep. And if you listen to their talking points, their white supremacist talking points from PIFA, that's what that's where their talking points are coming from. It's anti-immigrant. And always remember that the abuse and mistreatment of anti of, of immigrants, especially black immigrants, is tr- rooted in the treatment of black Americans. It is nothing but an extension, and that is why the least amount of immigrants allowed in the country are black, and the first ones they kick out are black. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of rallying around certain issues that can be done, and it should be done. That's just that's really the truth of the matter. And, um, you know, one thing I can say is no one has ever heard of an American expat in another country or a black country saying that they're being mistreated and being called an outsider and an American 
and being like to the point where they're like, you know what, I need to move back to the United States. Some people choose to do that, but the vast majority of people who move away from here tend to never come back. And, you know, I know of a group of people, um, um, Americans who've been in Trinidad since the 1800s, and they're celebrated. Nobody's telling them, go back to America. You're taking our jobs. It's like, it doesn't make sense, especially if the jobs aren't, aren't places you own and that you're the one who, who's running things. It's another group of people. So they're making these decisions, and it's creating dissension where there should be no dissension. Because, again, a lot of the reasons that these immigrants are coming here is because of the activities of American politics in their countries and sometimes military action in their countries. That's what's driving them here. And why is that? What, they, what did um, uh, the, the, the former African AU ambassador to the U.S. say? Instability. Instability. They're running from instability that the U.S. created. So where are you going to go? The most stable place on earth. The place that's creating the instability. Well, Mr. Fuller say what he call it, uh, uh, racial dislocation. Racial keep dislocation. The, keep them on the move. Exactly. And see, like these are the these are the higher levels of thought that it takes in order to actually be able to to get people to understand more holistically the subjects that they might be discussing and just be a little empathetic because the whole thing in a nutshell is this. If you're not able to show empathy to people that you are going to eventually need, that you're going to eventually need at some point, don't expect them to show you empathy when you need them. And and that, it's a revolving door thing. So it, the, the, to me, even the blame game is just is, is outdated. It's really about trying to find inroads as to where you can coalesce. And there's a lot of history of different groups that worked together in the past, but today, there's detriment all over it as far as the experiences that we have. But a lot of it comes from divide and conquer because you can say what you want about Latinos, but there is a history of Latinos and blacks working together in this country at some points in history. But now the divide and conquer is so successful. And then some of them are coming from countries that are embedded with racism of its own towards their black population before they even move to America. So when they move here, they just bring what they carry from their home country, which is pretty much European racism in the form of Spain or Portugal, and they just practice it here. But there's there's too much to be done, and it's going to be important for the discussion to be a national discussion, and it can't be a national discussion without different groups of people having that discussion. And that's that's what that should be the end game. It should be all about reparations, not you know, not immigration or any of that other stuff, unless it's about justice. Because remember, the treatment of immigrants is rooted in the treatment of of um, American Africans who were enslaved in the Americas. Okay, now check this out. Hey, hey, one last uh, thing, close it out. I just got one last thing. I please, God. I'm gonna take it back to the beginning. What is that intentional <laughs> intentional blindness? Willful blindness. Willful blindness. So a lot of people like to quote Malcolm X when he was in the Nation of Islam, black first and all that kind of stuff. People still say it, black first. But they, 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 they willfully, what is it, intentional what? Willful blindness. They're willfully blind. They are willfully blind to how he evolved. And I just posted this quote um, uh, today where these Indians made a, um, let me pull it up for y'all. These Indians, um, I think they in South Dakota or wherever, the Plains Indians, 
was was making an ad in 2016 supporting Bernie Sanders, and they were talking about I'm a human being, and 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 we need to care about each other as human beings, and they were talking about how that relates to to their culture, and so I, I was completely reminded about what Malcolm what Malcolm X said about being human first and about practicing justice. Man, I'm, I'm here. It is right here, and I posted okay. this of the ad that this other brother posted, Malcolm X, I'm for truth, no matter who tells it. I'm for justice, no matter who it is for or against. I'm a human being, first and foremost, foremost. and as such, I'm for whoever and whatever benefits humanity as a whole. And as, and as he also said, that it's gonna come a time where we gonna have a war between not the black and white, not the blacks and the Latinos, not the Latinos and the Native Americans, but we're going to have a war between the oppressed and the oppressor. Great program, guys. I hope you're able to post all of this. If you need help in me breaking this up so you can post it all, then let me know. This has been a great program. I appreciate you. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. And I appreciate all of you who have stayed these almost four hours. Don't get used to this, though. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it's 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 a beautiful thing just to have these conversations and know that it's all about love, man. It's just about us. We have to come together. Without without us being able to coalesce around problem solving, there's no reason for us to exist. When you look at what white people did to colonize the planet, they had a pan-European approach to dominating everybody. That's what they did. They put aside their differences long enough to handle the world majority of non-white people. And once they had them suppressed again, they went back to their traditional fighting amongst themselves, which is what we see going on right now. You know, Russia um, is making serious inroads on the continent because they wiped out billions of dollars worth of debt. And they're, they're pretty much telling these African countries that we want to work with you with no conditions, no, no strings attached, no economic or political conditions to our working with you. So they really want to have at those resources and they're willing to, at least in a public way, take an approach that, that seems to be the most uh, equitable approach thus far from any of those nations, whether you're talking about China, India, the United States, Britain, or any of the other nations that are in there trying to get a foothold. So it might set up Russia to do a lot. From what I understand, I think it's like 18 countries already signed up for them to work with Russia for nuclear technology. And um, it's an it's in order for the, for them to be able to create energy for the people. So it's not for nuclear weapons, it's for pretty much for energy in order to run infrastructure for the countries, these 18 countries. So there's a, there's a lot of things that, that, uh, that need to be done, but the biggest thing is just about us unifying around, sol around solving our problems and being able to coalesce a, a, around issues that can positively affect either ourselves or other groups of people that look like us. That's that's that should be our main focus, period. And um that includes reparations for black Americans and reparations for other groups eventually. Uh, already the Australians, I know that the I believe the Northern Australians, they got like three hundred billion dollars from the Australian government for you're genocide and, and abuse. Um, last year I believe it was. You talking about the Aboriginals? Yeah, the Aboriginals from Australia. There was a certain group of them from I believe Northern Australia. 
and the government had ended up giving them in a court settlement uh, $300 billion. It was earlier, earlier this year or last year, but that's what it went through, and they got like $300 billion, and it was for all their pain and suffering and all this other stuff. And, again, you can't really put a price tag on the types of heinous things that were done to people, but you can try to make it right and make those people as whole as possible. You know, and making them whole as possible to me should be making it as easy as possible for them to get assistance in finding out their heritage, finding out what parts of the continent they came from. They should be free genetic testing for those who who are willing to go through it. Once they find out where they're from, it should be free classes for them, free flights for them to go back to those countries and see the people who they left. Um, I believe they should, if they want to, they should they should be able to learn the language of their people and have that paid for. You know, if they want to spend, let's say, five or six years in that country just to get to know themselves, the U.S. government should fully fund that type of stuff. Like, that that's part of what I'm thinking about. But I could be incorrect. It's just an idea. So I don't want anybody coming at me crazy. It's just, you know, an idea, you know, for those people who are interested. Because some people probably don't care. and Or they might just have a different ideology of who and what they are, so they don't care to even look into that. That's fine. You know, you live your life, you do what you do. But for those who are actually interested in those things, I think those things should be readily available because that is making the human being whole. Right. Trying to give them back what was actually taken from the people who were actually forcibly removed and bought here. You know, and just another thing, just to show, like, the more people try to distance themselves from Africa, the more Africa makes itself prominent as the birthplace of humanity. Recently, I posted an article from Ancient Origins dealing with the fact that they had found, they pinpointed the actual place in Africa where the genetic stock that people, the whole planet came from. And just like our ancestors said, it was in Southern Africa. From what I remember, I believe it was in the Botswana areas where they find that original DNA that everybody around the planet shares. It was from that region. Then also another article came out talking yeah, about the fact no, that they... No, 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 let's not do it. Let's not it's a short do one. it. It's a short one. But that was dealing with the fact that um, there's over 6,000 languages spoken on the planet, and they found the mother tongue of all languages, whether it's from Mandarin to English is what they said, all started on the African continent over 70,000 B.C. No other place on the planet could lay claim to that but there, and they were able to show it without equivocation that that's what it is. So, you know, this is not new, you know, trying to disprove African origins. They've been doing that for hundreds of years now, and every time they do it, more evidence keeps coming out to the contrary. So, you know, and things could always change, you know. Uh, you know, uh, facts and things change over time as new discoveries are made, but I just think that it's the longest-standing anti-African thing was to dehumanize them in the form of not giving them the credit for who and what they are. And then, you know, the ancestors showed their brilliance or showed, you know, these origins all the time. And it's through these same people who are saying it's not them. So, you know, I mean, I'm talking about uh, European colonizers when I say it's not them, because they're the ones who've been majorly trying to say it's not it's not black people. Everything came from Europe. But that was it. You had any last thoughts before we close out? Man, it has been a long, long program. I agree. Uh Man, like I said, I got a heavy heart, man. I I really hate what done happened today. I really did not want to do this show, and I can't believe I've been here for four hours already. But I enjoy, and it's very soothing to, to have these conversations with uh, with the listeners that do engage 
and also the listeners that give their input on the uh on the thread so thank y'all being here through this time uh with that being said your your mic was making a noise again ross oh i was just actually moving something go ahead hit us off with the uh with the prayer and we're gonna we're gonna go and shut this down for the night no problem um i'm gonna just make a last statement then we're gonna say the prayer and go out and, and close out everything. So it says, if in, if European culture is insanity, then at the fundamental level that humans define and perceive reality, we as Africans and people of color have a very serious problem. If a cultural minority becomes the power majority and this minority through military might, media and religious might force the majority cultures to adopt this culture as their own, then insanity becomes the norm and redefined as sanity. Accepting another another's reality as your reality makes their reality your reality. If the insane can convince the sane that insanity is sanity, then the sane majority become insane and insanity becomes universal and comes to be seen as sanity. Those individuals or groups who dare to hold on to their original sanity become universally depicted as truly insane or backward. And those who are carriers of the original insanity become universally depicted as truly sane or modern. So I just wanted to just lay that last one on you before we close out. Thanks again to everyone for spending this Tuesday night and evening with us. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you, those of you who listen to the podcast later, same thing, ditto. Thanks, uh, love and light to each and every one of you all. Thanks to Scotty and the other callers and listeners and everything. It was a um, haze. It was just a great, great uh, discussion and appreciate all of your input seriously. So let's get it rolling. Creator, we ask that you help us to remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us to remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time that we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Let's replace white supremacy with justice ASAP and let's end human trafficking in the prison industrial complex as well. I am in the love of the all, and all love is in me. I am a part of the all, and the all is a part of me. I am one with the all, and the all is one with me. I can succeed as a part of the all and fail as an individual. I can be all that I wish in the all, as long as my wish is to stay in the all. I am never alone. The all is, I am. The all can, I can. The all does, I do. Once again, thank you to each and every one of you for spending this Tuesday evening with us until Wednesday morning. We greatly appreciate you. Stay safe and out of the hands of those slave catchers. And Creator willing, we'll see you again next week, Tuesday, same time, same place. And hopefully we have some more input again and have a nice holistic conversation with each other. Peace and love. Stay safe and um, stay healthy, each and every one of you. One love, peace and love, and good night. Uhuru and Ubuntu to each and every one of you. Peace and love. Thank y'all for staying with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to push. Oh, okay. Okay. I ain't know what that was. Yes. Thank y'all for staying with us. And uh, just be safe out there. Hope you enjoy this music selection. Don't you where you come from? I 
and you're a black man, you're an African. No mind your nationality, you have got the identity of an African. Cause if you come from Clarendon, and if you come from Portland, and if you come from Westmoreland, you're an African. So don't you where you come from, as long as you're a black man, you're an African. No mind your nationality, have got the identity of an African. Cause if you come from Trinidad, and if you come from Nassau, and if you come from Cuba, you are an African. So don't you where you come from, as long as you're a black man, you're an African. No mind your complexion, there'll be slow rejection, you're an African. Cause if your flexion high, 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 your flexion low. And if your flexion in between, you're an African. So don't you where you come from, as long as you're a black man, you're an African. No mind denomination, that is only segregation, you're an African. And if you go to the Methodist, and if you go to the Church of God, you're an African. So don't you where you come from, as long as you're a black man, you're an African. No mind your nationality, I've got the identity of an African. Stop working for someone else. I'm going to bust three.